Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to Dick It Happened Here, a show that is about a number of i really should have done an actual intro for this one this is embarrassing um i'm your host mia wong uh with me is shireen and james hello, hello. mia hello mia that was great i thought that was actually great mm-hmm. I, you should yeah. keep them guessing you know <laughs> yeah yeah they never know what they're gonna get will it be sad will it be happy yeah unfortunately yeah. this is a this is a uh this is a really sad episode this is an episode that i got really pissed off while writing Yeah, and this is an episode about Palestine. Now, most of the attention on Palestine right now has been focused on Gaza for, you know, very obvious reasons. Um, Gaza is the place where, you know, most of of the Israeli offensive is happening. It's where most of the people are – the Israelis are killing the most people. Uh, But, however, comma, there's also been a bunch of killing going on in the West Bank. And – this is, you know, the 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 murders of Palestinians in the West Bank is stuff that, you know, it's been intensified by the current conflict. But this is stuff that's been happening even before, like, the, this latest round of stuff started. Since the beginning of the year, Israeli settlers and government forces have killed several hundred Palestinians in the West Bank. And I think in a lot of ways, the dynamics of the entire Israeli project 
are clearer in the West Bank than they are anywhere else, which is a bold statement, which I, I will concede. <laughs> yeah. But I think by the end of this, we'll see if I'm right. I think you're I think you're right in the sense that, like, the systems of apartheid are very clear in the West Bank versus other parts of. Yeah. 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 I mean, the violent dynamic of Israeli the, the Israeli project is pretty fucking evident when they're bombing children yeah. in Gaza too. Yeah. Like it's, it's yeah, but I think I, I think specifically the the part that's easiest to understand in the West Bank is why it's why it's a mutually self reinforcing dynamic. Or why mm-hmm. why the why the settler project keeps like has been building the way that it has. Why it keeps inevitably leading to violence the way that it has, and why it's it's you know effectively the sort of cyclical self reinforcing project. Mm-hmm. But to actually understand what I'm talking about, we need to go back to the beginning of the Israeli occupation to understand what the occupation actually is. Because I'm not, I'm not actually sure. I don't know. This is something that like, I, I, I feel like most of the people talking about this kind of just assume everyone knows. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we should not assume that. and We yeah. should you know, actually go back and run through some of this history really quickly. Yeah. My cynical take is that most of the people talking about this maybe don't have the deepest understanding themselves and are like, therefore oh, yeah. skating along on that assumption <laughs> in, yeah. in order yep. not to have to expose their own shaky and, foundation. Like, I, I feel like I've talked about it before on like every podcast I've done, but I feel like people like tune it out. You know what I mean? Like I feel yeah. like people don't actually absorb what I'm what any what what they hear because it's like oh this again yeah. or whatever the fuck they're thinking. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hammer I'm gonna hammer a copy of this into all of your brains. You have no choice. You must listen. <laughs> yeah, Martin Luthering the history of uh, Palestine. Yeah, yes. gonna nail ninety five mm-hmm. copies of the Geneva Convention mm-hmm. <laughs> onto the door. So in the beginning, there was the Nakba, which is the, the great disaster of the Palestinian people, in which the Israelis armed, I should mention, by Stalin, which is something that is incredibly inconvenient for everyone in the entire American political spectrum. And we will get back to who also, like, who specifically was doing the Nakba, yeah. because it's not exactly who anyone really expects or portrays them as, but. Yeah, a, b- a bunch a bunch of armed settlers armed by Stalin drive 700,000 Palestinians from their homes. They seize those homes, and they take them for themselves. Now, this is I I think okay, this this is this is the part where where disclaimer Mia is not an, is not a, a a professor of international law. I think this was actually technically not a legally a war crime because I uh, only because the 4th Geneva Convention hadn't been ratified yet. Because the Nakba took pl- takes place in, in 1948, and this is a year before the Geneva Convention or the Fourth Geneva Convention, the part that has the stuff we're going to talk about, uh, was ratified. It's two years before it comes in, into force. But, you know, from the beginning, what you have here is a settler colony. The Israelis have driven out the Palestinians who have been living there. They have seized their homes, and they have replaced them with Jewish settlers. And they've also massacred, like, 15,000. Yeah, they've, yeah, they've killed yeah. a shit ton of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I should be more explicit about that. Like, when I say yeah. drive out, like, sometimes they were, it's just, it's people fleeing. A lot of times, mm-hmm. it's, they're killed. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I, like, they, they flatten entire villages, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not just, like, oh, they're empty houses now. It's like, no, they actually destroyed everything, built new cities where there already were cities, renamed the cities. It's, yeah. it was just, I don't know. It's shameful. Yeah, 
the reason people are leaving is because they've seen their neighbors and family members killed and their fields and houses burned and they know that that's coming for them right later they're not yeah yeah uh, I think this is bouncing. sorry. Just one tangent is I. There are so many videos of like former IDF soldiers that were or not. It's not <laughs> IDF technically, but like former mm-hmm. people that fought in the Nakba that like drove these people out of their homes, and it's so repulsive. There's literally like a. It was on an Israeli news channel or like some type of Israeli show where there's an old man like laughing about how him and his group raped a 16 year old girl and shot everyone in a row, all the babies, everything else. It's just like. And that's coming from them. So I think that's important to know. It's not just like us saying, oh, my God, these terrible things happen. It's like, no, they actually admitted to it multiple times. We're just telling you from, you know what I mean? I think it's important to to say that. Yeah, and this is something we're yeah. going to get into more in a bit. But one of the consequences of this and one of the consequences of, of running a settler colony like this is that the, the the people that it produces who are the people who you know the people who are like murdering people and taking their homes right in order the kind of person you have to be in order to do that is just absolutely terrifying just uh, like you know i mean this and this is why you see so much stuff both here and you know like back like in 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 the early phases of uh like not even the early phases, but like most of the phases of U.S. settler expansion, right? You 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 read the accounts of these people, and it's like these people are all serial killers. To do that, I think you have to convince yourself that the people you are doing it to are less human or or not yeah. human. Like that, that it's fundamental to colonialism, right? To consider yourself to either be a higher form of humanity or to, like distinct, like in a species sense, from these people. Like British mm-hmm. people did that in their colonialism too. Uh, but yeah, you you see it all the time in. Um, specifically in like the language and culture that depicts the settler colonization of the United States or what is now the United States, right? Like uh, you can look at the uh, like what is called the, the Indian Wars after the after the Civil War and see just all kinds of the most fucking horrific shit imaginable because uh, you're you're doing a genocide, you're just doing it like piece by piece as you go across the country. Yeah, and this is one of these parts of American history that people don't understand. And when you learn it, there's this real sort of even even in sort of radical <laughs> accounts, and I understand why they do this, but there there's a tendency to not to sort of back away from exactly yeah. how violent this stuff was. And you know, a lot of the reason for this is like it's you know it it it, it can get into this sort of realm of like I don't know this almost weird like like tragedy horror porn stuff but like it was mm-hmm. it was as bad as anything that has ever happened yes yeah, to and, humans yeah yeah and then and, and, and the people doing that stuff are you know dr- driven by the same kinds of mm-hmm. of stuff that's happening here oh, fuck it. the people doing that stuff are still like uh like there, there's a, a park named after them in san diego there's kit carson yep. park there's unipero Serra park like like it's baked into american culture still like that the genociders are, are fucking celebrated here. Yeah, and this is and this is this is also true of Israel. Now, okay, so so after after the Nakba, there's there's a lot of people who think that like this is the end of the whole process, right? That like, okay, so we've expelled these people, we've killed these people. There's now a Jewish state. It has like relatively stable borders or whatever. This is going to be the end of it. And that that did not happen. 
And one of the reasons that didn't happen is the the 1967 Six Days War, where Israel launches what's called a preemptive strike on Egypt. It's okay. So they they this is the PR term that's been developed afterwards for it. Uh, the reality is that Egypt was not about to attack Israel. The Israelis just started a war, like just straight up started a war and invaded Egypt. And the, the Six Day War winds up being a war between the Israelis and it, so it's mostly Egypt. They, they end up fighting Egypt, Syria, Jordan a little bit. Um, and like technically the Saudis, like Iraq, Kuwait and Lebanon are in the war, but like they don't do shit. Um, th- there's a story. I, th- I think it's actually from the 73 war, but there's a story of uh, there's there's a, there's, a bu- there's a bunch of people in like there's a bunch of uh, Egyptian soldiers in, in, a, in, in a bunch of trenches and a bunch like the, the the like Saudi command rolls up and the Saudis roll up in fucking Rolls Royces and the, <laughs> the Egyptian commanders looks at these guys and just says go home because people just like yeah and, and, and this this is one of the sort of dynamics here of like oh god like the Arab powers outside of Egypt for some of the time really were not taking this very seriously and you know and and, and the consequence of this is that. The the is the, most of the most of the sixty seven war is, I mean the entirety of the sixty seven war is just the Israelis beating the absolute piss out of the Egyptians, um, in large part because the Egyptians weren't like actually trying to fight a war, so they were basically completely unprepared for getting invaded by Israel. Now, this is this war is a complete disaster for for the Arab powers. Um, Gamal Abdel Nasser is so ashamed of his defeat that he resigns and doesn't like come back until a bunch of protests in Egypt like demand that he come back. <laughs> he did really royally kind of like his position was that we're like eventually they're going to attack us. We'll have a defensive position and then failed miserably at, at having. Yeah, that. It, it, it did not work. This is this, this, this is yeah. a complete disaster. But and, and, and the other, you know, the, the part of it that's that's most important for our story is that. This is the period where the Israelis start seizing territory en masse. They take the entire Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. They take the Golan Heights from Syria. And most importantly for our purposes, they take both the West Bank and Gaza, which means they now mm-hmm. occupy all of Palestine. Now, immediately, like effectively immediately as this is happening, 1.3 million Palestinians flee the West Bank and Gaza. And, you know, this this has a consequence of enormously expanding the already very, very large, like permanent refugee population of Palestinians in a bunch of other countries. And this is also where we come to the focus of today's episode, which is Israeli settlers. Uh, but uh, do you know who else shows up uninvited and is technically <laughs> illegal under uh, multiple <laughs> sections of international law? Is it Ronald Reagan? I yes. surprise Reagan. Yep. And we are back. So one of the things that the Geneva Convention establishes is this set of legal obligations that occupiers have in occupy in over territory that they occupy. So if you know, the way this is supposed to work under international law is that, you know, technically speaking, yeah, you can occupy territory, but you're not allowed to do whatever you want with that territory. You have to actually abide by a set of a set of like laws. And this was done to, you know, after World War II to protect like people in occupied territories from just the just unbelievable horrors that were unleashed by the Nazis in World War II. <laughs> now, 
one of the things that you cannot do if you are occupying a a territory is you cannot expel civilians from their homes and replace them with your own civilians. Yeah. This is this is a war crime. You are it is under international law you are not allowed to do this. Now, I've been talking a lot about international law. I this this is something where I kind of I don't know if disagree is the right word. I have very little faith in international law. I know a lot of people who are have been involved in this, you know, like in in the struggle for liberating Palestine for a very very long time like take international law very seriously. Um I don't know, like I mean, Israel has has uh, not followed international law for yeah, like, its I, like, existence they, and like they, nothing happens. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's where's really the international like police? Word. It's like there's no yeah. weight to it. I don't believe yeah. what it's telling me because nothing yeah. ever happens. And it has maybe it has a moral value, right? I guess that's that's the idea behind some of the activism is that like it, it can help position something as being in the wrong, and then that might impel that someone to Israel. act. But yeah, yeah, it hasn't fucking worked. It didn't stop fucking. It didn't stop the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar. Yeah, it hasn't yeah. stopped the population exchange in Afrin. Like it, it's pretend. It doesn't exist unless someone it's enforces pretend. it. Yeah, yeah. But, like but, it know, doesn't. I don't know it's it's I feel like sometimes it's a totem for like Western liberals to be like oh well they 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 can't do that they're they're breaking international law oh fuck they're doing it anyway like well yeah it's like it oh that's be really bad, bad. yeah and then they Tusk. just keep doing it so yeah and like uh, understandably like no one particularly wants to like be the ones who enforce international law because that involves your children dying uh, and so they let's let other children die instead yeah and. You know, but and the, the the consequence of this being really toothless is that, but you know, it, it, it's the language that this stuff is framed in, and I want to frame this like differently for a second, which is I want I want to think about what is being prohibited here in basic moral terms, because the the what the what this article of the Geneva Convention is supposed to stop is an army showing up, killing a bunch of people, and then settling their own population on top of those people's corpses. And that is fucking horrifying. There is, you know, obviously, yeah, there's a reason why the Geneva Convention was like, holy shit, like, we can't have this. Yeah. And, but, you know, obviously this hasn't stopped, you know, this this hasn't actually stopped this from happening. Like, we we, we now live in, effectively, the new golden age of ethnic cleansing, right? I mean, the the 1.2 million Gazans who fled their homes after the Israelis told them to literally told them to flee or die, which is that that's yeah. by the way, and I don't want to be very clear about this. When people talk about an evacuation order, that's what that is, right? In, 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 you know, this isn't an evacuation order from like a tsunami, right? Like it's not like there's a natural disaster coming. The thing that is happening is the Israeli government has said you must leave now or we are going to kill you, and you know, and, and of course the. The, the the other bleak side of this ride is that with the the the, the quote unquote evacuation order, the Israelis killed the people who were fleeing anyways. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you know, and they had nowhere to fucking go. Like they, yeah, they're, they're trapped. Yeah. Correct. Right. Like, yeah, evacuate you know. does make it seem like a very like humanitarian crisis when really that that's all you're right. Yeah, it's yeah. The, all they're saying is like leave now or die in the next hours. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, yeah. It's not evacuation. That's like threat like it's just a death threat essentially. yeah if i was to like stand outside your bedroom and pull the pin on a grenade and be like i'm giving you an evacuation order oh and i'm gonna yeah. eat this grenade in here in five exactly. seconds people yeah. wouldn't be like oh that's reasonable oh no i've locked all the doors to your house as well yeah. <laughs> like, just, just for funsies yeah. yeah yeah and you know and so and so i mean this 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 is this is what's been happening in gaza right you have 1.2 million gazans who fled their homes and they've joined the 120,000 Armenians who were ethnically cleansed from the Garo Karabakh by Azerbaijan in September, which 
this is the era we are living in right now is an unfathomable era of violence and, and ethnic cleansing, right? Like none of none of the international legal frameworks like did shit. None mm-hmm. of, none of none of the sort of, you know, like the none of the never again stuff. Like no, nah, you can you can you can literally like you can ethnically cleanse the Armenians again and nothing will fucking happen. Yeah. Um Oh, the Rohingya you know, in Myanmar, we didn't do shit. Yeah. Or I mean, like, right right people. now, we are we are averaging one, one like, mass-scale ethnic cleansing a month. Mm-hmm. Jesus. And that yeah. is a fucking unbelievably bleak thing. And it's um, only done to, to populations that are systematically, like, dehumanized. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. Yeah. That's like, oh, people are used to seeing this group of people suffer. They're used to seeing these kinds, this mm-hmm. kind of population just always die and, and be, I don't know. Uh, bombed and stuff so I think a lot of people just kind of gloss over it because they're, they're just like oh this is what happens to them and yeah, it just like keeps it, happening yeah it's uh, it's certainly like not a coincidence that like we there have been other ethnic cleansings right in Africa and, and like I said the Rohingya Muslims but like when it happens in, in the Middle East or, or the Arab world or whatever, where we want to say it like it's not the Arab world I guess because it happens to Kurdish people too um, but like yeah people are like oh well another sad thing has happened like over there and then it's very easy, especially with the way American news media only focuses on these parts of the world. Like they just pointed it and like, oh, look, sad. And then never give the context like me was explaining and never give the background. And then we're blindsided every two years by a fucking genocide or an ethnic cleansing or, or a mass murder yeah. because we don't report on it. And then it pops up again. and No one understands. Uh, and yeah, it, I'm I'm very bleak on the media at the minute. Yeah, well, and and I mean, I think you know the the important context to understand here is that the absolute horror show that's happening in Gaza right now that the Israelis are doing, this is one of the most extreme forms of it they've ever done. But this is something they've been doing from like the fucking moment they took the West Bank. Yeah, this is this is what they were doing. Um, and again, yeah. this the is never ended. Really, yeah, 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 yeah. Kept yeah. going. It was like quiet mostly for a while. People ignored it, but now it's just really loud and it keeps happening. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and you know, I th- I think the the oh god, what am I blanking on the like continuous Nakba thing is 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 the way that it's understood. Well, is yeah. is, is the is is what it's called in Palestine, um, in in sort of settler colonial studies. The 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 line that people always say is that settler colonialism is a structure, not an event. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not a thing that just ends, right? It just yeah. is. It it is it is, it is the, the you know it is the air that you breathe. It's the sort of you know, like it's 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 the walls of the society that have been built to, like, yeah, mm-hmm. cage and destroy people. Yeah. Now, you know, the the Israelis. Again, this is the thing that when 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 sixty seven happens, this is actually it's kind of a turning point in the sense that like there are groups of liberals who had supported the Israelis in forty eight who were like, whoa, hold on, hold on, like this is actually like really stunningly illegal. And this doesn't do anything, but there's a lot of people who who make who make a distinction between Israel in 48 and, and this Israel, because this Israel, yeah. like the mask is off. There's nothing there's nothing there anymore. Right. It's just we have we have seized this land by military force, by attacking a country who we were not at war with. And we are now like systematically replacing the population of these places with our population. Um and the consequence of this, the, 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 this, this is Israel, settler population. The consequence of this is that there's now it, – it's hard to get accurate numbers because these people 
in theory aren't supposed to be there, but there's something like 500, somewhere between 450 and 500,000 Israeli settlers in the West Bank and another like 200,000 in East Jerusalem. And this means that the settler population, in if you count both the, the West Bank and East Jerusalem, this is about 7% of the total population of Israel that, that are now these settlers. Um, and these settlers are, I don't know, this is, this is I, I guess, what you would call Israel's colonial frontier in the sense that, yeah. like, these are the people who were, like, on the absolute front lines of, of Palestinian dispossession, yeah. of, like, killing people and taking their stuff. Um, settlers is almost and, a misnomer because they're not, like, uh, it's not, like, Sometimes I think that constructs a notion of like unsettled territory and they're settling yeah. on it, right? These people are violently colonizing someone else's land. Yeah, which 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 was also true of, of the American like Yes, yeah, very much you know, so. Yeah, we shouldn't right. use that like, here. Yeah, we yeah, shouldn't use that shit yeah. here. Or pioneers, don't pioneer shit. People live there for tens of thousands of years. No, they were they were pioneers, yeah. But like the way that the state thinks about its own geography is is mm-hmm. in the terms of these frontiers. Sometimes yes. they call them buffer areas. And yeah. they 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 think about these things as as these these areas where they need you know of of projection of military control, the projection of sort of their their power mm-hmm. and also sort of settler power, and these kinds of you know and th- this is this is this is what what the sort of settler populations of the West Bank are the front mm-hmm. line of. Now yeah. these people are subsidized by the Israeli government. That if you, if you, if you go to these places. You get tax breaks. Um, you get you know there 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 there's there's, 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 a, there's a whole variety of sort of government subsidies for these people. Um, they also get very and th- this is this is a thing that I think is really interesting that isn't discussed very much. The Israeli like social services in the West Bank are very very good. In some cases, they're they're better than the stuff that's in like Jerusalem or in like the other the other parts mm-hmm. of Israel. And you know all this and this acts as sort of as as part of the sort of incentive package to get people to move into these settler regions now and you know the the these these people reap other benefits too right they have enormous an enormous degree of military protection and this is one of the things that shreen you talked about Mm -hmm. this right if you you know if if, if you're trying to figure out where the fuck was the israeli army when hamas attacked well the answer is they were all in the fucking west bank helping a bunch of settlers steal land right Mm -hmm. which which you know protecting settlers terrorizing Palestinians. Yeah, that was literally yeah. what was happening. And that happens all the time, but it just so yep. happened to happen on this very large-scale attack. Yep. Yeah. And the level of violence that's happening here, you know, I mean, we're going to talk about the more direct settler violence. Like, these are, these people, they, these are people who have set multiple babies on fire. Like, that is, like, they, 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 they have set multiple children on fire. This, this, is, this is the kind of people who you were dealing with when you're talking about, especially... So, okay, so there, there, there's, there's a distinction inside of Israeli law about which of these settlements are legal. So, again, under international law, all of these settlements are illegal. Like, there's no... This is not a black... It's a completely black and white thing. Every single settlement is illegal. Under Israeli law, there are some settlements that they officially approve and some of them that they don't. And so the, the the ones that they do approve are the ones that you know they they those are the ones with better government services. They get roads mm-hmm. built out to them, and and th- but there 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 are kinds of violence here that are you know there's there's I guess you call it bureaucratic violence or stuff like you know one one of the sort of like benefits you get of, li- of living in the West Bank is like the Israeli government has diverted basically the entire West Bank's fucking water supply to fill these people's swimming pools. And this is water that is, you know, the the thing that had been used for 
for a very, very long time is people in the West Bank doing agriculture. But, you know, that's becoming you know, growing olives and it's becoming increasingly fucking impossible because the Israelis are, are diverting their fucking water and then also lighting. And then, the, you know, the, 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 the government diverts all the water away and then the settlers light the fucking olive trees on fire. And this is actually and this is weirdly a thing that like almost exactly the same pattern is stuff that like Turkey has done to the Kurds, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you yeah, know, like basically every every ethnic minority like. Yeah, in, Russia in, does it to its Kalmyk people. Yep. Like it's the story I hear so often at the border when talking to people in any number of languages from any number of countries is like, oh, they have cut off the water supply to where we live and now we can't live there anymore. Like uh, across Africa, sadly, like yeah, even within yeah. Russia. Like it, it's it's like uh yeah, like you say, it's genocide by diktat or fucking, you know, it, it's it, it's an ethnic cleansing that doesn't look so bad on TV because it happens a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a way to remove people. And you can look at like drone pictures of the West Bank uh, and, and you can see these little fucking like green lollipops, uh, like the, the road and then the settlement, right? And like people have trees and shit and like it, it's it's wild. Yeah, I think the unique part about uh, Israel and the settlers there burning all the olive trees, I feel like I did an episode about this before. I don't know if it was you this did. podcast. Yeah. But yeah. um the whole essence of Zionism is the idea that there's a group of people that are like meant for this land. And I just find the olive tree burning the best example of how that's just like such bullshit. Because if you actually cared about this ancient land, if you had ties to this ancient land, you wouldn't want to burn this like native plant that's been there for thousands of years. That's been the source of all the economy for Palestinians, all this stuff. I think it's just the most clear example that Zionism is not about uh any kind of connection at all it's just about power and land and not about the not land in the sense of like the architecture or the history or the nature it's just about i don't know like a land grab like just colonial land grab yeah well and and i I think i I think the fundamental thing at play here and this is this is the sort of one of the, the the fundamental tenets of settler colonialism is that these people see land as a commodity Right. They see they 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 see they 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 only see land in terms of things they can buy and sell and things they can possess. Yeah. It's a fundamental tenet of the state, really, right? Like the more like square miles you can bring under your like where you have a monopoly on legitimate use of violence, like the 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 more important you are as a state. And so like this this is a problem of, of states. Yeah, and we we will we will get into this more in a second, but first we need to go to ads. So the Israeli settlers are a real problem for everyone who supports Israel, um, because it it is it is really really hard to be sort of you know take take your sort of like liberal humanitarian stance on like. Israel has the right to protect itself, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then here are these like yahoos in the hills lighting children on fire. And, you know, I mean, and th- this is the thing where even even like very reliably pro-Israel groups like the Council on Foreign Relations are like, whoa, Nelly, these guys are <laughs> messed up. And I mean, and you, yeah. you can find writing for them. And they've been writing about this for a long time because this is all stuff that's been it's been very, very obvious of what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the the you know the level of violence is going to ramp up and the, like all of this stuff n- none of the stuff is happening now I mean like it's I, mean, I, I guess this is one of those things is like everything is impossible until it happens or whatever but mm-hmm. you know all all of the stuff that's happening is 
I mean, like if you just spend any time looking at what was happening in the 2000s, 2010s, nothing that's happening now is like particularly surprising. Now, mm-hmm. what what what's very interesting about the settlers, though, is that okay? So when, when the Council of Formulations, the Council of Formulations went in and was like, okay, so what is with these people, right? They assumed initially that you know, okay, so the, you know they're they're taking a sort of liberal like. So they're like, okay, well, these these settlers must be responding to Palestinian violence. And no, it turns out, actually, not only are these are these attacks not like retaliatory, right? It's 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 not that like these settler communities were being attacked by Palestinians and they were attacking back. Settler violence is actually inversely correlated with with the level of armed struggle being carried out by Palestinians. So the the the, the era of settler violence ramp up is the late 2000s and the 2010s and this is the period you know if, if you know anything about like the the second intifada this is the period where like palestinians doing armed struggle in like all of the different forms is tapering off and so and this leaves people kind of confused as to what the fuck is happening here um and and so okay so we, we can ask like what is actually driving the, the violence of these sort of settler expansions. And the pe- the thing most people focus on is, is ideology and to some extent religion because a, a, a huge number, although it, it should be mentioned. Okay. So like a lot of settlers are what are, what are like what are religious Zionists who are people. A lot of these are, there, there's like a specific religious Zionist party that we'll talk about a bit later um, who are like specifically Orthodox Jews, but like there's a lot of right wing religious like Zionists of like various stripes who you know, and, and their their thing is that they believe that they have a God given right to take whatever land they want in what they call quote Judea and Samaria, which is the West Bank, and they believe that they just have the right to take this land. Yeah. And if anyone tries to stop them, they will kill them or drive yeah. them from their homes. And it's true that these people exist, right? And these people obviously, and we're gonna get into this more in a second, like mm-hmm. these people have had a profound influence on Israeli politics. Yeah. But on the other hand, they're not they are a lot of the settlers. They're not the entire settler population. In fact, there's a lot of settlers who are not these people. And the the other thing about trying to purely explain the dynamics of violence by, by ideology is it can't explain why, really. I mean, there, there's a kind of like a breakwater event where so, – so there used to be settlers in Gaza too. Um, and the Israelis pulled them out when they pulled out of Gaza in 2005 – and that pissed off the settlers enormously, right? And, and th- this is part of one of the things that like leads to the sort of settler violent turn was they were like, well, okay, so if the Israeli government isn't going to like, I don't know, if the Israeli government one time will stop illegal settlements from happening, uh, we need to like make sure that we are violent enough that it will ne- that they'll, they'll never try to get rid of another settlement, settlement again. And, and that kind of explains the violence uptick, but it doesn't explain all of it. Um, actually, so sorry. Before I launch into this, I should ask Sri, what, what were you gonna say? Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. I just wanted to make a really important distinction that, like, Zionism is not a religion per se. It is a political ideology, right? Yeah. Like, you can be Christian and Zionist. You can be Jewish and Zionist. Um, I've had multiple anti-Zionist Jew Jewish people on the show, and I feel like they're very important in the fight for Palestinian liberation. But I think that's a really important distinction because Zionism is fairly new. It's not like this ancient religion. It, it was like the late eight, uh, yeah, the late eighteen hundreds is when it really like became uh, formed into what it is today. So I think that's really important to remember is that uh, 
Zionism itself is not this like deep spiritual thing that a lot of Zionists claim it is. It is just fucking politics and just yeah. bad politics. And, and and I think the other really important thing about it too, and this is something that has been changing, but like Zionism, most Zionists, like when Israel was formed, were secular. Like they were, they were secularists, yeah. right? The law, a lot of these people were leftists. They were secularists. They weren't. And the, the emergence of this religious Zionism stuff, this is like, this is stuff that started happening really in like the 80s. So this is like 40 years old, right? Like billions of people on earth are older than this kind of religious Zionism. Yeah. And so the kind of transition from more secular forms of Zionism to more religious forms of Zionism is it, this is one of the things or like like the, the the claim that this is the driving thing like this is this is what you'll get a lot from like council of foreign relations people and sort of like and it's kind of true to some extent but comma there's also something else going on here and that is the israeli housing market so all right i i, I swear i swear this is connected <laughs> but we, we need we need to do a tangent through the israeli housing market so all right so I, I, we, we've, we've talked about how, again, the, 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 the rise in cellular violence is something that it's, it, it starts in the late 2000s and accelerates to the 2010s and has reached a fever pitch now with like in the past like month, they've killed like 130 people in the West Bank. And OK, so what, what, what actually also was happening in that time and. The answer to that question is that between 2008 and 2010 alone, and this is very weird because, again, think, think, think about the time period that we're in. This 2008 to 2010. This is like right after the 2008 financial collapse. There is a 35% increase in housing prices in Israel. This is nuts, right? Like this like everywhere else in the entire world, the, like the, the, the price of housing is tanking. In Israel, it is skyrocketing. Okay, the, the, the price of housing is increasing. The rate at which the price of housing is also increasing. It's skyrocketing through the entire 2010s. And then, like, the rate of increase in the 2010s looks like a fucking joke compared to the rate of increase in the 2020s. And these increases coincide with, guess what, the massive increases in settler violence. Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons. One is that, you know, and so, sometimes every once in a while you will get like someone will just like, I don't know, some like council of formulations guy will say like, well, there are settlers who are there for economic reasons. But what actually does that mean right now? I've been playing kind of fast and loose with statistics here, right? Like, obviously, you can't just point to. Okay, one number was increasing at the same time as another number. Correlation implies causation. Like, no, it doesn't. Right? That this this is too loose, and the correlation here isn't. You know, it, it's it's not quite that simple. But, comma, this is legitimately one of the things that's been driving, uh, driving Israeli settler violence and sort of the the expansion of this sort of of this sort of Israeli settler project, and at the core of this is this fundamental tension with housing in capitalism in which a house and also but very importantly the land that it's on is two things at the same time right the how a house is a thing that you live in but it's also a speculative asset that appreciates in value over time or is supposed to appreciate in value over time and when and when you know housing values don't go up homeowners get very 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 angry because it's also supposed to be a speculative asset 
Now, the, the, the sort of technical terminology for this is that a house has a use value, which is, you know, it's a house that you live in, right? And it also has an exchange value, which is this, this value on the market that's a product of the sort of social relations that form the economic system. And with housing, in, the, the, all commodities work like this. With housing in particular, the, 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 the two sort of natures of this commodity work against each other, right? If, if you want a house and you want a house because you want to live in it, you want you know you want the price to be as low as possible right you 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 want for houses to be speculative assets like as little as humanly possible but on the other hand if you want a house because you are you know say a real estate firm or a land speculator or you know you're just you're buying a house as like an investment you want the price to be as high as possible because it doesn't matter to you if people actually use the house live in it all all that matters is that you're getting money from this house and you know, it's something I've talked about a lot on this show. And since really the 90s, when Japan figured this out, housing has been like the speculative asset par excellence. It's the thing you dump all of your money into when you have a bunch of money sitting around that you can't turn into more capital. And, you know, this, but th- the problem is that this creates these massive like housing bubbles that makes like housing and rents increasingly unaffordable for everyone. Now, you could address this by, you know, addressing a dual nature of the commodity and transforming your economy in such a way that houses are not commodities and thus, you know, is a use value and is a place to live and not, you know, like a financial asset. But nobody's going to do that, right? Because that that requires like a systemic transformation of your like this requires you to abolish capitalism, right? So instead of doing this, right, the, the other thing you can do when housing prices are really high is you can go kill someone and take their land. Yeah. And yeah, you know, and you know, I mean, this is this is a, a very old American sort of colonial. I don't even. Yeah, I think this is where it's from. But like, yeah, the the every empire know, the, does the, this, so right? Like, working people yeah. can't afford to live with dignity, so we fucking ship them off, so they strip someone else's dignity and make their fortune on someone else's land. Yeah, yeah, because the 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 cheapest land is land that's paid with someone else's blood. Yeah. Now I'm I'm gonna read from. A little bit from a very, very. I, I, I really recommend people actually read this because it's a really interesting view of mm-hmm. of the occupation. I'm gonna I'm gonna read from a piece called "Hostile Intelligence: Reflections on a Visit to the West Bank," written by David Graeber. This this is from 2015, mm-hmm. but you know, and this, but this is one of the things about about the occupation is that if you're at any given point in time, if you are looking at what's happening in the occupation, you can unfold the dynamics that are going to be. That are, that are going to be the future of the occupation. So here's David Graeber. First, the settlements. They were originally the product of a relatively isolated, if well-funded, collection of religious zealots. Now everything seems to be organized around them. The government pours in endless resources. Why? The answer seems to be that since at least the 90s, right-wing politicians in Israel have figured out that the settlements are a kind of political magic. The more money gets funneled into them, the more the Jewish electorate turns to the right. The reason is simple. Israel is expensive. Housing inside the 1948 boundaries is exorbitantly expensive. If you are a young person without means, you increasingly have two options. To live with one's parents until well into your 30s, or find a place in an illegal settlement where apartments cost perhaps a third of what they would in Haifa or Tel Aviv. And that's not to mention the superior roads, schools, utilities, and social services. At this point, the vast majority of settlers live on the West Bank for economic, not ideological reasons. And this is something that, like, this is actually 
kind of reversing now just because of how like how far right and how the spread of like sort of like ideological like right-wing stuff has spread but this is at the time in 2015 this was true yeah and this is especially true around jerusalem but consider who these people are in the past young people in difficult circumstances students well-educated young parents have been the traditional constituency of the left Put these same people in a settlement, and they will, inexorably, without even realizing it, begin, begin to think like fascists. Settlements are, in their own way, giant engines for the production of right-wing consciousness. It is very difficult for someone placed in a hostile territory, given training in automatic weapons, and warned constantly to be on one's guard against local populations, seething over the fact that your next-door neighbors have been killing their sheep and destroying their olive trees, not to gradually see ethno-nationalism as common sense. As a result, with every election, the old left electorate dis further dissipates, and a host of religious, fascist, or semi-fascist parties win a larger and larger stake of the vote. For politicians, who can barely think past the next election, the lure is inescapable. And so I, I, th I think this gets at like the core of what's happening, what, what specifically what's happening in the West Bank, which is that, yeah, these settlements are... You know, I mean, if, if 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 you were trying to generate in a lab a place where you could turn a bunch of people into fascists, it would be it would be these settlements. And for more on that, come back tomorrow when we finish this conversation. In the meantime, this has been Nick Adapted here. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet betmgm and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
Welcome to Kadapid Here, a podcast that is once again about Palestine. Hopefully you listened to yesterday's episode, this one's going to be a little bit out of sorts. But yeah, we are we are continuing and finishing up our conversation about Israel and settler colonialism, so strap in and enjoy the show. If, if you were trying to generate in a lab a place where you could turn a bunch of people into fascists, it would be it would be these settlements. This this has a bunch of downstream political effects, right? One of them is that okay, so whose land are you taking here, right? The answer here is it's a lot of Palestinian farmers. And you know, once you kick farmers off their land, they can't be farmers anymore. And this leaves them with two choices. One, flee Palestine altogether, and this is really really hard. We've talked about it on the show. It is really really difficult to get out or your other option is to become cheap labor for Israeli capitalists. And this is another, another part of the sort of self-reinforcing dynamic of these engines, right? Is like, you know, if, if, if you're dealing with a population that doesn't have the means to support themselves, except for, you know, these, these Israeli like work passes that they like, you know, like bestow upon the benighted population, like, it's, it, it makes it incredibly hard for there to be any sort of resistance movement. And, you know, the other thing that David Gray was pointing out that, you know, he was, I think, ahead, like ahead of the curve on in a lot of ways is, I mean, this has been happening for a long time, but the Israeli, like, electoral left is just gone. Um, Israeli labor, which is like the, like, Israeli labor is the party that built Israel, right? Like, it, it, it was Israeli labor guys who, like, pulled together this, the entire Zionist coalition and like turned them into the engine that could actually win the war in 48. Labor was outperformed by fucking Hadash in the in the most recent election. This has happened several times now. Hadash yeah. is an alliance of the Israeli communists and like left Arab nationalists. And when I when I say they do better, it's, it's not to say that Hadash is doing well, <laughs> but like they, you know, they're both polling at like four percent, right? And Israeli labor again, like has ruled is ruled Israel for like a like a very significant part of its history. They are now nothing, right? There's four percent of the vote. They they have they have the same amount of vote as the old as the Israeli like and specifically I should mention this is this is the this is the like anti occupation communists. This is another one of the sort of dynamics of settlerism that you know this is sort of is is universally true, right? This is it's it's not just Israel where a bunch of people who are nominally leftists, a bunch of people who like you know fought in their own liberation struggles, get turned into just like absolutely fanatical right-wingers. There are an enormous number of United Irishmen rebels from the rebellion of 1878 in Ireland who go to the U.S. and, you know, wind up, a bunch of these people wind up in the American army. A bunch of these people wind up, like, I mean, I guess it's technically not the Indian Wars, but, like, a lot of these people wind up, like, fighting the Creeks in 1812. These people could become the front line of, of settler expansion in the U.S. Yeah. And this all this happens again with like German and French like liberals and socialists who flee the the, the crushing of the 1848 revolution. It actually almost happened to Marx. He, he wound up not going to the U.S. But there's a lot of settlers, like there's a lot of like uh, uh, is, uh, European socialists who come to the U.S. and see all of this land, and they go, "Oh shit, we can solve like we can solve the problems of the old world by just taking this land." Yeah, having our little like uh, utopian socialist settlements. Was it Owens or Jones or someone? They had these like. Yeah, I think yeah. yeah, Quaker utopian sort of settlement towns in someone else's land. Yeah, well, and th- that's one of the ways this happens. There, there are other ways this happens too, where it's just people 
you know, it's not it's not even always utopian communities. People, a, a lot of, and and this this is also so. Okay, there are people who come over from the eighteen forty eight revolutions who like you know like August von Willich is probably the most famous one. Like he's he's a communist who ends up like fighting for the Union, and then notably not fighting in the Indian Wars after. But you know, a lot of these people. They, they come to the U.S. and they're like, OK, well, so they're like the, the, the fundamental contradiction to capitalism or whatever is that like, you know, people like people, people are forced to become like as they, they would literally call it like the wage slaves of capital. Right. And so these people yeah. <laughs> take a bunch of just incredibly bizarre stances like one, they're 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 against the abolition of slavery because they they're like, oh, well, if you free the slaves, these people are going to compete with us for wage labor. So either either they're pro-slavery or they're like slavery, the, like ending slavery is a thing that can only happen with the end of capitalism. So we don't care about it. <laughs> or and this is a very common thing that this is one of the, and this is, I think, much closer to the Israeli dynamic is these people become convinced that like, the, the, the you know, the, the problem with Europe, right, is that, you know, Europe is entirely ruled by either feudalist or like feudal barons or capitalist. Right. So there, there's no way for someone to like make like make themselves in the world, right? There, there's no way for them to be independent, like of the capitalist class. But in but in the U.S., there is because all you have to do is you know in, in, instead of being part of the like the industrial proletariat or whatever and getting like crushed by the boot of capital, you can just go become a settler farmer. And this yeah. is like this is one of the defining ideologies of the U.S. Like Abraham Lincoln talks about this. Of like the thing that makes the U.S. different from Europe is that like yeah you can you can go be a settler and you can get your own land. And this is something you can also trace back to the foundation of Israel. Israel was created, you know, there are there are there are right-wing Zionists, right? But it's also created by liberal socialist communists and even anarchists who'd fought in the Spanish Civil War who go to Israel, become like become Zionists, are armed by Stalin, and these people create like, you know, these are the people who do the the Nakba. Yeah. Lots of people were also there were Jewish I guess socialist is probably the best term for them who had yeah, come to fight in Spain and then returned to Israel. Yeah. Um, people interested, Renan Rain has done a really good paper about some uh, Jewish people in the International Brigades. So not all of them turned out to, to do the Nakba, to be clear. Like, yeah, some, 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 um, some of them were good. It's actually, also- it's actually really sad to follow the plight of... It's a slight divergence, I guess, but Jewish people who had fled pogroms in the early 20th century, grown up largely in New York, uh, in extremely impoverished neighborhoods, fought fascism in Spain, came home, fought fascism again in the rest of Europe uh, after like pointing at it in 1935 and going bad and in America going, now nah, dog, we're good. And then in 1941 going, who could have foreseen this? Um, and then they come... In the meantime, they see Stalin signing a pact with fascism, right? And they feel horribly betrayed and have to have to deal with either leaving the Communist Party or, or working out in their own head how the fuck the people who killed their friends are now their friends. And then they come home after the war, they're blacklisted under McCarthy, and they see the Nakba happening, you know, like the few, later on, and they they they're disgusted, right? Like like they everything that like every sort of like identity and group that they've had they feel has turned against the things they think are morally right and they have these really difficult lives uh, despite like pursuing what most of us would agree is a moral good throughout their lives yeah being being consistently moral fucking sucks and that yeah, is a yeah the world will leave time. you behind yeah yeah it is a fucking awful time to do that yeah, it's, yeah so, it sucks yeah um Okay, we should take another ad break and then 
Yeah, our adverts are not consistently moral. Woo! Very unlikely. And we are back. So we've been talking about the capacity of settlements to change someone's politics, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's as these labs of consciousness that produce certain kinds of right-wing politics and mentalities and, you know, and, and produce right-wing soldiers, right? But the settlements also do other things. And one of those things that they do is the settlements are a big reason, you know, if, if you were invested in the peace process, like this is a big reason why the peace process failed, was that the settlers never had any intentions of abiding by any of the treaties that were being signed by by the Israelis, right? And this is something that is true transhistorically, right? This is a dynamic you see in American history too. The U.S. signs like hundreds of treaties with like like just incredible numbers of indigenous nations. And do you know yeah. how many of those treaties I end up upholding? Yeah, that's none. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you you can look at the Supreme Court, right? And you know, the Supreme Court will uphold laws from like 1795, right? Yeah. The one kind of law they will not uphold is their treaty obligations. At which at which case yes. they will go literally, they will just go. Well, we are obligated to do this under treaty, but it is too hard, so fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they'll go previous to that and treat cite the fucking doctrine of discovery or the treaty of Tordesillas. Yeah. So yeah, good old Ruth Bader Ginsburg, liberal hero. Yeah, and so you you can look at this from sort of two perspectives, right? You can look at this from the perspective of the state, and you can look at it from the perspective of the settlers. And you know, I mean, and, and I think I think I think there's a, there's a, a a third view that's kind of sees them both as an extension of the same thing, which is what we're going to co- sort of come to, but. You know, you you can you can look at this treaty stuff, and you can look at the fact that you know both the settlers and the Israeli governments like signed the Oslo Accords, fully intending to do more settlements, right? Mm-hmm. And this is and this is something that that like the Palestinians are watching, right? Like if you're a Palestinian, like you are watching these peace accords get signed, and then you are watching the Israelis fucking bulldozing your house, yeah. And and this is this is a this is a thing in the U.S. too, right? It's like everyone who signs a treaty get like. Like all of the nation that signed treaties get a get a watch as the U.S. is like, oh well, actually, like no, we never had any intention of like fulfilling this. Like no, we're just going to keep exterminating you and like chasing the sort of like like shattered remnants of your tribes, like uh, literally across the entire fucking continent. And yeah. you know, so so you can look at this from the from the perspective of the state, and you know, like like dealing dealing with the american state like it, it is well known by every nation and every race that has ever had to deal with them that the white man is duplicitous and his state is built on lies and that is only kind of a joke <laughs> like everyone who fucking yeah. deals with the americans is like what the fuck is wrong with these people like do these, yeah. like do these people like not understand what an agreement is like what it, you know yeah this is something that like i know if you travel a lot abroad uh, and and you work in places where american forces have been Nine times out of ten, uh, someone will sit you down in a tea house or a coffee house and unbidden just be like, "What the fuck is wrong with these people? Like, like why did they treat us like this? Like, like we fucking did everything you asked, and then you fucking abandoned us or killed us? Or like, like, yep. yeah, like everyone. And it's, of course, Britain does it too. I'm not saying like America's special, but fuck me, America in, in the last two hundred years has really set a new precedent yeah. for just like Janus faced bullshit. Yeah, and. You know, and 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 this and it's particularly bad when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with settlers, because you know one of the one of the things about the state is that the arc of state policy and settler colonies always bends towards injustice in general, and in particular, the thing it always bends towards land seizures. It seeks to expand its base of power, its territorial base, and its economy, which leads it to push as far as it possibly can 
towards dispossessing the indigenous population. Now, this is also the interest of settlers, who act as a kind of extension of the state that goes beyond its normal capacity to do what it wants to do. And, you know, in, in the U.S., the human manifestation of this is Andrew Jackson, who is a man who completely illegally, on multiple occasions, just, like, conquered Florida and... You know, conquered Florida specifically, and this is one of the, like a couple of things. This is what I have. I have a very good friend who talks about this a lot because they're they've they've been studying this period immensely. You're probably not listening, but love you. I, yeah, but talks about this a lot, which is that Andrew Jackson is like part, but a big part of the reason why he's going into Florida is specifically because he he wants to smash these uh, these like indigenous like black indigenous like allied Baroon communities there. And so Jackson, you know, J- Jackson, like is is like under orders not to invade florida he invades florida anyways you know we 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 we, we there, there there's a very similar sort of tension between like the courts and you know like the, the 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 courts in the settler state that you have with the sort of international community in israel now where like the courts are like andrew jackson you cannot do the trail of tears and andrew jackson is just like fuck you like we're doing the trail of tears we're we're going we're going to do a genocide and you know, and, and the, the thing the thing about what Jackson represents, right, is that ja- Jackson is is the human embodiment of of all of these sort of structural. Like he he's the human and political embodiment of all of these structural tendencies of settler colonialism. Now, one and one of the things that that's I think is interesting about this is that there are like all of the settler states, right? You see this in like every single one. And I'm going to talk about the U.S. because that's the one that I, like other than Israel that I know the best. Well, I don't probably think probably know like the U.S. better than Israel. But there are always times when this, when the, when this, the, the the federal government tries to crack down on settlers, right? This happens like repeatedly. I mean, this and this is the thing. Even like like the the, the British are like spend a lot of time trying to stop the colonists from like moving like from moving west. And I think that there's a lot of people who like have come to believe that if the, that if the British had won the American Revolution, that they would have been able to stop the settlers. And no. Like they yeah. wouldn't have been able to. They they would have been able to. Maybe they could have delayed it by twenty years, but no. There was there was no one has ever really been able to stop these people. And you know the the IDF like you know, we talked about this a bit earlier, right? The IDF in two thousand five did pull like when they pulled out of Gaza, they they dragged like eight thousand six hundred settlers with them. But again, this is this is the dynamic to like that's incredibly familiar to anyone who studied the history of settlers. In the U.S., is that government attempts to control settler expansion inevitably fail when confronted with the, the you know the, the these unstoppable twin economic and twin imperatives of the economic benefit to the settlers and also the, the the sort of specular the speculative value of these of this new land to to, to land speculators. But then the the other problem is the inevitable rise of the settlers themselves as a political block. Which in the U.S., the, the the man who is the champion of the settlers is Andrew Jackson. And this is, you know, when he comes into when, when he starts taking power, when he starts getting power in the army, you get uh, the conquest of Florida. And when he becomes president, you have the you have the trail of tears. And in Israel, this is this is represented by Israel's overtly genocidal finance minister, Betsiel Smotrich, who represents the religious Zionist party. And uh, I, I'll give you all three guesses what those guys believe. If if your guesses are they are unhinged settler racists and like turbo homophobes, uh, (laughs) you're you're right on the money. Yeah. So he's also a conspiracy theorist. Like, yeah, yeah. This guy is uh, unhinged. They're very open with their uh, genocidal 
Um, yeah, yeah. Wants like there's no there's no subtlety. They're just like let's let's flatten what let's flatten Gaza. Let's kill them all. You know what I mean? It's just like yeah. they they encourage yeah. same like with a very Trumpian thing. Yeah. It's like encouraging uh, the hate that is there to <sighs> fester. It's particularly like to I'm sorry to divert us again. No. I found the fucking uh, like you can't support Palestinian liberation if you're queer dunk that we oh see from like Zionist neoliberals to be one of the most frustrating a like you can support what the fuck you want like you don't need a condescending fucking uh like resist mum in a minivan to tell you what you can and can't believe and like be go look up some of this guy's statements because fucking you ain't gonna find anyone yeah. who's more genocidal towards queer people openly than this motherfucker I mean, Israel is like very well known for like pink washing and pretending they're yeah. very progressive and yeah. supportive of, yeah. of queer people when they're really not. I mean, yeah, this country to... also is not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's. I think I think that argument is a very privileged elitist one. Yeah, and like, like, yeah, I, I just like ha ha homophobia exists there. It's not. It's not a win for anyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, if you want to get married to someone of the same gender as you in Israel, you do it on Zoom in fucking Utah. Like that, that mm-hmm. like when when you've been outflanked to the left by Utah, uh, yeah. you, you done fucked up. Uh, you don't get to wave your pride flag at anyone. Yeah. F- fuck off. This is one of the the sort of progressive veneer of the Israelis has been, you know, like fading because these the, the people who are coming to power now, and Netanyahu in some ways was one of the sort of vanguards of this, but like. This and this is the thing you're seeing in India too, right? Like, whenever you get a far right guy, right, the thing that inevitably generates is people who are even further right than they are, yeah. and that that's that that's what these these settler people are. And and the thing is, like, these settler guys, you can't cover for them. Like, if you if they are on camera for longer than about thirty seconds, they start saying stuff like just the most unhinged, like. Yeah. We're gonna kill all the Palestinians. They start saying like we're 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 gonna kill every Arab. Like they start talking about very and very explicitly like their 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 platforms that they you know they're and then this is this is so part of the reason that the, there are there are there's a coalition of of these like of these like far right settler parties that are now backing Netanyahu and this is this is how Netanyahu has been able to stay out of prison is that he's been able to back enough he's been able to buy off enough of these people that they're backing his government so he can stay prime minister so they can't charge him, yeah. um. But the the you know the 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 concession basically for this was that these like this guy was just basically just given control of a bunch of state military power like from the army in the West Bank that's been given to him and his settler fanatics, and you know like especially since like the Hamas attack like these, the government has been handing out guns to these people like candy yes and. They've been using it to just murder Palestinians in cold blood. And, you know, I mean, I think is people do a lot, right? So, sometimes they just kill people. A thing they do all the time is just in the middle of the night, like if you're if you're living in the West Bank, like a bunch of masked guys will show up, they'll break into your home, they'll beat the shit out of you, and they'll say, like, if you don't leave tomorrow, we'll kill you. And, you know, sometimes those guys are settlers, like are just like sort of are, are non-mil, like, I don't know, like non-military settlers, right? They're like settler civilians or whatever. Sometimes those guys are just like the army. And there's no fucking way to tell which one, like, because again, it's just a bunch of people in masks appear in the night and break into your house and start beating the shit out of you. And these people, these are, these are the people that increasingly the Israeli political system is being run by. And, and you can't, 
and it is in in in, in a similar way to the way that Andrew Jackson just like rips off this mask of sort of like New England gentility that the U.S. had like had had under like John Adams and mm-hmm. uh, uh or like John Quincy Adams and like Monroe. Well, Monroe's I guess like a like Monroe's like a you know like another one of these sort of like dignified Virginia planter guys, and like you know and those people have do a lot of the same violence that that Jackson does, but Jackson is the guy who just rips the mask off and is just you know this completely unhinged settler maniac who like this is the guy who killed like just murdered a bunch of people in duels like you know and and th- th- these are the kind of people who are co- who are coming to power in Israel right now and this is this is a self reinforcing dynamic because the more power these people get right the more they're able to you know just carry out genocides and the more genocides they're able to carry out the more that they're the more people they're able to push into these territories that they've taken and the more people they put in these territories the more of the more of these like settler fanatics there are and this this is one of the big things that is driving the entire conflict well i think a good thing to remember is that last year there was an election like going into 2023 and uh israel like put into power a bunch of these right-wing people was it 2023 was 2022 i'm losing track of time he came in last he came in 20 yeah i think he was a minister he was appointed minister in 2022 but oh okay sorry the years time the election not real yeah i don't remember when the election my point is that like in recent history the last couple of years these extreme right-wing racist people are in power all the all the places of power all the ministers all the whatever the shit they're all shared they all share this ideology that like arabs must die basically that's like their the main point is that they are superior to arabs and that they must die and that this is a zionist place that is theirs and you know, and and what these people are doing when they're in power, and this is the thing that, and this is one of the things they were trying to do before the sort of like the the current war started was they were trying to annex the West Bank. And th- this is a very explicit goal. Now, this is a very explicit goal of the settler parties. They will kind of they they know it's pretty hard for them to like legally annex it, so they will talk about like effectively annexing it and stuff like they'll, they'll do these sort of like subtle metaphors. But like, yeah, what what they want to do is to kick people out of what's called Area C, which is just the majority of the West Bank. And they, they want to kick all the, like, the immediate plans, they want to kick all the people out of Area C and push them into just, like, increasingly tiny corners of, of the West Bank. And presumably, because, again, if, if you listen to all these people talk, right, it's, they, they talk about, like, uh, Jews have the right to live in... Uh, uh, like Judea and Samaria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. they how, call how, the West how, Bank. Yeah, yeah, they have, they have a yeah. right to live there. So, and the thing is, like, if you believe that, right, that means you have to kick all the Palestinians out of the West Bank entirely. Now, the place these people have stopped, <laughs> sort of, before the war, the place these people had stopped was like, well, okay, they can live in Gaza. But now they're talking about, you know, I mean, just like taking <laughs> over most of, like, just taking over most of Gaza and driving the Palestinians out. Yeah, and it doesn't have to lead. Like, Jews have a right to live in this place. Doesn't have to lead to thus we must genocide. The people yeah. who live there, right? Like we, it like it. This is what happens when we get a, a state that understands existence as destroying anybody who is not in agreement with this right wing genocidal fucking outlook. Like, like it, it has been possible for people of different faiths to live in different places. But it was possible is, before forty eight. Yeah, over, exactly. It was already existing. Yeah, like this. Yeah, this the ideology that is inherent to like a, a, a Zionist militarized state 
will never allow that coexistence to happen, right? Because it it relies on coexistence not being possible as part of its narrative for, like Mia said, taking, dominating, and expropriating that land and, and gaining the value from it. But yeah, like, it's the narrative that they need to say stuff like, "Oh, th- th- all the Gazans should just go to Egypt or whatever it is." <laughs> like it's all part of the plan to kind of just like expel them so they can. Yeah, it doesn't uh, even have to be like. Ter- yeah, go ahead. It's not like an explicit plan that like they have a whiteboard and they're like, it is, you know, l- Although, l- they, like they, they they do actually <laughs> occasionally just write it out. Sometimes, like, sometimes yeah, yeah. they do actually explicitly write the plans down. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah you can yeah, see yeah. on yeah. x.com from time to time. But it's inherent, as Mia said, like several times yeah. to states and to a capitalist state that is a settler colony, right? Like, it's inevitable. It happened here, it's happening there, it's happened all over the world. Like, it's not possible to construct a capitalist state on someone else's land on someone else's bodies it doesn't do this yeah and i mean and this this is this is also one thing i wanted to emphasize too is that all of the shit that's happening in palestine happened here right i mean i guess like we like the u.s didn't have the kind of surveillance technology in like the 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 18 teens right that the israelis have now but you know like we we did all this shit too right like this is this is all of the land that we live on that's that's where that shit came from um there's there's this great uh i, I really love uh daniel Kahn and the painted bird uh it has this great line in one of his songs that goes because he's the one who did the stealing and named you as the heir whose filthiness provided you the privileges you bear and this is this thing in the u.s right it's like in israel you know if you're a settler on the border right there's no there's no escape from what you did to take this place, right? Like you are you are looking down on the people who you've like whose houses you've taken, right? In the US, we have this sort of luxury of like, well, this happened a long time ago. Like we don't have to sort of we we don't have to see the consequences of it. But we still do that, it though, right? Like we yeah, didn't just yeah. happen. Like we're doing it at Oak Flat, for instance, right now. Yeah. Or like yeah, look at how Trump fucking did uh, indigenous people during COVID. Like, it's an ongoing process. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. But, yeah, like it, the, it, but it's, it's so much easier for Americans to pretend that it's not happening. Yes. And, yeah. you know, like, no, like, it, it turns out, in fact, that, like, this, 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 and this is where the sort of subject colonialism, the structure, not an event stuff comes from. And it applies to both Israel and the US because. Guess what? I mean, it turns out Israel just, Israel literally uh, took notes for what the U.S. did and just did it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's just the same thing. In the end, like we're the bad guys. Yeah. Like we're, we've always been the bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> is it? Uh, are we the bad guys? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Thanks, Jim. You know, I'm Chinese, right? And this is one of the things that has informed a lot of my sort of perspective on on Palestine because. All of the things that are happening to Palestine is shit that was done to us by the Japanese Empire, right? And we fought a war to stop them. And that war was hideous. That war, the the war in China sees some of the darkest moments in human history. And and there's this tendency among, I mean, you know, there's a tendency among both, both the communists and the nationalists want to sort of sanitize it, right? They want to turn it into this sort of glorious war for liberation. And like, yeah, like there are moments of like, you know, glorious anti-imperialist struggle, but that war mostly was just a horror. And it's a horror not just because of the atrocities committed by the Japanese, right? The Chinese side in that war also does things that are unforgivable. And I'm not even talking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki here because, you know, like, 
we as in like Chinese people, like we didn't do that. Right. Like, you know, Mao, Mao, like on the one hand, it is true that when Mao found out about the nuclear eruptions, his reaction was, wait, you had a third bomb. You didn't drop it on Tokyo. But like, you know, we didn't do that. Right. Like that was that was the Americans. That wasn't like that wasn't like us in China. But, you know, the, the things that I'm talking about, the, the, the Chinese side of that war did that were just unforgivable. You know, I mean, I think the best example of it is Chiang Kai-shek blew up a dam on the Yellow River. And his goal was he was trying to, you know, he was trying to flood like several provinces to cut off the Japanese army and to like slow down their troop movements. Right. And he slows down their troop movements and he does it by killing four. This is this is this is this is the low end estimates is that he killed 400,000 people. That is a an amount of death. That is unimaginable. He killed, like, in a single act, he killed 400,000 people. It is two Hiroshima and Nagasaki's. And that's, that's the low-end estimate, right? People, people, people fighting against Japan, people fighting against colonialism did unforgivable crimes. And, you know, and the people of, of China, like, never forget, like, to this day, like, in the provinces where... Like where this shit happened, like Chiang Kai-shek is fucking despised, and you know the and like when when like when the Allies won the war and when China drove out the Japanese, right? Like the next thing they did was they drove out Chiang Kai-shek because he was, you know, because because he had done things in that war that were so terrible that people were willing to be like, fuck it, like Mao didn't fucking blow up a dam and kill four hundred thousand of us, right? You know, and so like, and and this is the thing about colonial resistance is that it is the things that people do are unforgivable. Also, that that war that Japan fought in China, they killed twenty million of us, twenty million. And this is one of these things, right? Where like colonialism makes monsters of us all. Suffering does not make you noble; it just makes you suffer. And so, you know, again, like the, the are like China's anti-colonial freedom fighters, right? Like fucking killed, killed numbers of like Chinese people that are, it's just unimaginable. And then, you know, these same freedom fighters who fought the good fight against Japan, you know, within 20 years, they're bulldozing mosques in Xinjiang and murdering communists in Tibet, right? And they've built two, you know, after successfully repelling Japan's attempt to turn China into a settler state, they have made two of their own. And, you know, so like there, there's there's no I, I think the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that, you know, like anti-colonial resistance is not this sort of like. It doesn't look pretty. It's a fucking whore most of the time. But you also, you know, when when you're looking into like when you're looking at these wars, you have to look at the direction in which colonization is moving. And that's, you know, that's the thing that is crystal clear in Palestine, right? Is you can just look at like which in which direction is, is, is colonization moving, right? Like who is taking whose houses, right? Who is, who is forcing a million people from what population to flee their homes? Who was, you know, who, who has been, who has been seizing people's land? And I, and I think it clears up, I don't know, clears up isn't the right word, but Specifically, the fact that this is that this is active colonization. That this is this is a, this is a settler colonial state waging a war against you know people like people who are fighting against colonization. That is the sort of 
that 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 is the 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 underlying current of everything that happens and and you know like i don't know like people people in anti-colonial wars do things that are unforgivable and they get you know and like often like their own people will eventually come for them one day and also i don't know I no one has to agree with me. It's fine, but I personally really dislike when it's called a war. What's happening in Palestine? Because I just think it's the clearest case of genocide I've ever seen. And like, I don't care how it started or whatever. I feel like at this point in time, uh, it's a genocide. Like, Palestine's not a country. Palestine does not have an army. They can't. No one can leave Gaza. Uh, I think that is. Um the current state of what the violence is going on over there and so maybe yeah, i'm just I mean, like particular no semantics, like i but, think i think you're like i think you're right about that and that's the thing that that's the thing that's different than yeah like the stuff that was happening in china was like at least we sort of had like at least we had a state right and we had armies and our armies got fucking stomped but you know we had like we we we, we had actual weapons yeah and, I, yeah i must have some now but I think you're to your greater point. Yeah, I think like, well, yeah, it sounds very similar to like, um, have you read Sartre's introduction to the wretched of the earth? Yeah, like where he talks about violence and the state talking in the language of violence and people responding in the language in which they're spoken to. I think I'm paraphrasing that relatively accurately. It doesn't have to be like the neither violence has to be good for it to be like an inevitable consequence of violent colonialism, right? That like. It, it sparks violent decolonization movements. It, it doesn't imply like a moral, uh, like a goodness to the individual acts. It's just an inevitable consequence of people fighting against colonialism in the only way that that colonialism kind of leaves for them, I guess. Yeah, and and I think I think another part of this too is that, like, just being in contact with colonial powers makes everyone worse. Like this is this is yeah. the thing you see in in the U.S. with a lot of with a lot of indigenous groups yeah. is that like, you know, like like by 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 the time the Trail of Cheers is happening, like the Cherokee are like have adopted chattel slavery, like a, like American style plantation chattel slavery, and that fucking sucks, right? It's like like it, be, being in contact with these settler empires, like brings out the worst in everyone. Mm-hmm. And there's no winning from that position, right? Like the 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 best. I don't even know if it's the best case scenario. Like, I guess occasionally you get like an Algeria, where you know they kill enough people, and like the the Algeria, like you know the, the the settlers in Algeria all like went back to France, but that's not an option in Israel, right? Yeah. Like, and we wouldn't even you wouldn't want it to be the solution yeah. either. So I don't know. It's yeah. one of these. I don't know. It's one of the sort of dilemmas of how do you deal with a settler yeah, colony? Is that it's harder to decolonize a settler colony, right? Because, yeah, like it implies a, a, a removal of one people or another people, and uh, neither of those things are in any way desirable. Like, and it, it's so hard to see like a, a path to a peaceful coexistence now because all we see is like the entire world ratcheting the fucking like violence level up and. Uh, like, yeah, Israel carrying out genocidal violence in Gaza is not the way we reach a, a, a 
a way for people to like children to grow up without fucking fearing if the sky is going to kill them in Gaza, right? Like this will happen for generations to come uh, because you've emotionally scarred little children. Well, how would you? Re- I think it's a very human response, if anything. Like I, I don't think we have the the right to judge how someone that has been through that hell how they respond because it's I don't know we haven't lived their nightmare it's just a nightmare and like it's not like like there it's not like there haven't been attempts at non-violent resistance in Gaza because they have and look what fucking happened and like yeah. there was a big one like like three or four years yeah, ago yeah yeah, yeah. Like, and, like you know I they, they like the fucking Krasenstein take the why can't they all just organize to march in the war holding hands and singing Kumbaya they fucking like I didn't try to do that but like yeah, they tried people like, people kept killing them uh, like yeah. I say this every time we talk about Gaza but i say it again uh, like when we were talking to the PK Gaza guys and I've known them for a few years like um, one of them was telling me about how they used to do sleepover camps for kids so the kids could learn parkour and not have to pay for the travel and like you know take their time and, and risk to travel so they do these sleepover camps in the summertime and he was explaining to me like it was the most normal thing in the world that these six eight year old children would wake up at night with night terrors screaming uh because they thought they were being bombed and uh, because they were having uh like a flashback from being bombed i guess and like that's something i recognize from from ptsd from from you know other uh contexts but like it really fucked me up that an eight-year-old child is like we can't yeah. expect these people to like develop into kumbaya singing uh like peace activists like they they they've taken on massive amounts of trauma they've seen their neighbors and families die uh like it, it doesn't mean that we have to be like oh well like violence is going to happen like that we should do everything we can to 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 make a world where like people aren't killing and dying there uh, because it will always result in more of the least empowered people dying. Um, but it, it's something that I think a lot of us are so far detached from that I think as as like, you know, if you lived your whole life in the United States of relative safety and prosperity, it's it's hard for you to understand, I think. Yeah, and I mean, like, this is a... Like, Gaza is a place where it rains body parts. Like, that's what happens when an Israeli bomb goes off. It rains body yeah. parts. And like that is a, I don't know, like the kind of person who has to grow up with that is just not going to be the same as like even people who have been through a lot of like really messed up stuff. Like it's not going to be the same as like experiencing that. Yeah. Like, even if you like, I have visited wars to, to report on them. But then I get to go home and be safe. And sometimes that juxtaposition is hard and it takes me a long time to not be afraid that the sky or a parked car is going to kill me. But I'm home and I'm safe. And once I can adjust to that, then I can I can get on. You know, change, things like that change you, but you continue with your life. But if, if you are never home and you're never, or your home is never safe, that's something I can't understand, right? That's something that I haven't experienced and very, very few of us probably have. I, uh a lot of doctors have said that all the children in Gaza, they haven't 
they can't qual they can't be quantified of having experienced PTSD because they haven't reached the post part yet. Like they're still yeah, they're like yeah. in a perpetual state of PTSD because that's just how they their entire lives have been. Most of them have never known life outside of the blockade. So it's I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think that's a good place to end. Of just you know, this is what this is what this this is what the 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 reality and the eternal present of settler colonialism is, right? Yeah, and you know, this is one of these things where, in in a lot of weird ways, like the, like there are ways in which we like people like if you live in the U.S., if you like even to some extent the U.K., like you are probably in a like maybe a better position to actually stop this than anyone who lives in Palestine is. So yeah. Yeah, this is in, but in and and the, the problem is if we don't right the 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 self the mutually self reinforcing dynamics of settler colonialism are just going to keep like carrying on and keep spiraling on and this is going to go on until everyone is dead or everyone is gone. Yeah, even if you can't stop it, like I sent the video. I'm sure you guys saw the video of the Jewish Voice of Peace people in the uh, Grand Central Terminal in New York. Um, and I said that to the Palestinian journalist syndicate and they were like, oh, this is, this is great to see. And it was something we spoke about in that interview too, how like it makes a meaningful difference to someone's state of mind to see solidarity, even if like, you know, we can get in the streets and we can say something and maybe that will make a difference. Maybe it won't, but like it, it, at least if it makes someone understand that you're kind of standing with them in a moment of darkness and maybe that helps in, in, a, in a way. Yeah. I think when a, when a whole population is not able to share what they're going through, their journalists are getting killed when the internet is yeah. is out, and the one thing they're saying is like, please don't stop talking about this, I think yeah. that's the easiest thing that we can do. Yeah. And hopefully maybe this will impel us to, like, as Mia said at the start, right, this keeps fucking happening. And, like, as ethnic cleansings go, this one's got more coverage than most in the U.S., and like, I would encourage you to look at what you're seeing in Gaza, and understand how inhuman and unimaginable it is, and and like maybe follow that that shouldn't happen anywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. It shouldn't happen in Tigray, and it shouldn't happen in Kurdistan. It shouldn't happen to the Rohingya people. Uh, and like, yeah, try try and uh, extend that. It's not to scold people. Like, if you weren't in the streets in 2017, fuck you. Like, it's uh, it's just to say that like we've all had a window opened even with every fucking attempt to shut that window right like for cutting off the internet to gaza etc this has been the most photographed ethnic cleansing whatever you want to call it in in probably in human history we're seeing more of it than we've ever seen before a lot of it in sort of uncertain ways or fucking footage from video games passed off as real life but we're still seeing it and we're still bearing witness to it to a to a limited degree right we're not seeing it in the sense people are seeing it firsthand and I'd encourage people to like remember this moment and the shock and the terrible things that you felt and and like uh, to not forget that next time you hear about something happening because like anywhere this happens it's a tragedy and anywhere it happens we should do everything we can to stop it.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast in which uh, my friend Kim Kelly and I talk about the fact that Zoom recently moved the record button, which most people will need at some point, given how prominent (laughs) this is with podcasting, uh, to replace it with an AI companion button, which I refuse to use. Uh, mm. and would 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 deploy violence against anyone who tried to make me. How are you doing today, Kim? <laughs> I am good. Also hating our AI soon-to-be overlords. Yeah. Um, yeah, doing my best out here in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, Philly. <laughs> how is how is Philly as the uh, as the fall comes in? It's it's a very sunny day. Oh. Um, it's also getting chilly. I'm into it. It's finally leather weather. I mean, uh, I, I guess it's always leather weather, depending on your level of commitment. But I am yeah. a wuss, and it's—I tend to wait for, uh, you know, the weather to tell me when it's time to break out my leather. Hell yeah! Um, you know, I—I I, I feel like all—all all things are fine. Um, personally, <laughs> uh, you should just assume, listeners, that I am always head to toe leather. Um, but anyway, oh yeah, Kim, videos on. He looks resplendent. Yeah, <laughs> Kim. Uh, you are a labor journalist. Uh, you cu- published a book. What was it last year? Year before last, called "Fight Like Hell." Yeah, um, yeah, about about the history of the labor movement uh, and and some radical moments people ought to know more about. And you and I are talking today about labor, particularly about the possibility of a general strike. Um, now, if you, the listener, have somehow missed this discourse. In short, a general strike is when uh, instead of one union of workers from one industry striking, 
everybody strikes, or at least, you know, a very significant chunk of the labor force strikes. And this is, you know, it's it's the kind of thing people on the left have dreamed about for years as like, uh, this is what could, you know, turn things around, reduce income inequality, force action on climate change, the military industrial complex. And kind of as a result, you've had feels like every year for the last few years since people started reading about general strikes, which have occurred in a number of places and times, there's these like someone will get on Twitter and be like, we're all doing a general strike in two weeks. You know, everybody get ready. (laughs) And folks will be like, that's not really how you do a general strike. And they'll go like, well, if you weren't saying it's not, it could happen. You know, you got to believe in it first, which is all of this is wrong. But the good news is there's a an actual plan that is cohesive and potentially achievable for a general strike that's been put forward by someone who knows what he's talking about. We're going to talk about that. But first, Kim, do you want to talk about why trying to get everyone on Twitter to launch a general strike in eight days is a bad idea? (laughs) (laughs) This is such a a pet peeve among... Well, I guess a lot of folks in the labor world who are also unfortunately on Twitter and social media is that, yeah, like you said, every so often there'll be a general strike hashtag or like a graphic on Twitter or on Instagram. And it's like, oh, are you taking part of the general strike? Like, are you striking on Friday or like tomorrow? Like, no. What? You, you're not even in a union. What are yeah. you talking about? <laughs> and it's like, I, I love the energy. I love the vibe. You know, I love the idea of a general strike. I think it would be incredible if we actually pulled it off. But the biggest thing in there is the if yeah. followed by the pulled it off part. Um, and one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, is that a general strike is akin to a big protest like, you can absolutely plan a big protest in a few days if you really want to. I mean, look at yeah. the incredible work that Jewish Voice for Peace has been doing uh, in New York and other absolutely. places they're going to be doing in Philly this week. I mean, it is possible to build on existing relationships and networks to create a big fucking deal of a protest. But a general strike is a different beast. It is a specific thing. It has a definition. A general strike, as you said, is when workers across various industries go on strike at the same time. And that is not the same as filling the streets for a protest. Um, It would be sick if we could kind of meld those movements like the radical, you know, radical organizers who are already in community, already building protest infrastructure and people in union labor world that are kind of beholden to contracts and more legal constraints. But it's going to take a little bit of time. It's going to take some dialogue, maybe even some fruitful discourse to get on the same page. Like there, yeah. like we there, there are laws. We live in a society, unfortunately. And it's it's not quite as simple as just declaring a general strike when you and like four of your friends call out sick. Yeah. And it's also like I think one thing that gets lost is you know, when you're going on strike for a lot of people, that's not just I have to figure out what to do with money. Uh, and it's certainly not, you know, well, I can just go and uh, be on unemployment or something because you don't really get that when you're striking. You've got a lot of people with like families. And so the idea that like you get some a, a podcaster, right, being like everybody <laughs> should just not show up. Was like, well, I don't know, man, there's people who got kids. They have other responsibilities than being a part of your revolution, um, which is not to say that I don't think like, again, we're about to talk about an achievable plan for a general strike. But one of the reasons why you can't can't pull it off in a couple of days 
is that you have to set, you have to have some sort of plan for how you're going to take care of the people striking, right? Like, so they don't starve and shit. Yeah, that is the one of the biggest things, I would say, arguably the biggest thing. But also, if you're in a union and you go on strike as part of, you know, broken down contract negotiations or part of the, the life cycle of a union contract, you have legal protections. You can't just be fired. Mm-hmm. If you take part in one of these kind of impromptu hashtag general strike actions, your your boss is just going to fire you. Yeah. And then like you're done. You don't have yeah. any protections there. Like one of the reasons that and, and I know it's not as much fun as just going out and saying fuck it and burning it all down. Mm-hmm. Trust me, I would love to see that type of shit. But unfortunately, again, we live constrained by laws and like logic. <laughs> and when it comes like the reason that you see big labor strikes and big picket lines and all this cool stuff that's happening like there, it's part of a process. Those unions are negotiating contracts, these legally binding documents, their collective bargaining gr- agreements that have expiration dates. Yes. You know, the UAW didn't just pick, didn't just say, all right, right now we're mad, we're going to go on strike. Like, no, their previous agreements had an expiration date. They hit the expiration date. And so they start bargaining again. Bargaining didn't go well. They went on strike. That is how it works when you're in a union. That's like just part and parcel of the the push and pull of leverage that workers have against the boss. And it's like a centuries old system. Like there's laws, there's protections, there's a yeah. lot that goes into it. And, and I think like we were saying before we hopped on the call officially, like I think a lot of people haven't had union jobs or didn't yeah. don't have a, a deep understanding of unions and how they work. So, of course, they wouldn't necessarily know when the expiration date is for this contract or what goes into bargaining union contract. But there's, there's a lot of moving parts. (laughs) They might not not know that as we're about to talk about, you can't just have a bunch of union leaders decide we're all going to go on strike at once. Sympathy strikes are very much not legal. Now there is a way to get multiple. uh, uh, We should just talk about like why we're doing this, which is that, so there's this fella uh, who so far has seems like a pretty pretty head out screwed on straight solid dude Sean dude, Fain who is Big Sean yeah Big Sean <laughs> and he's like the, he's the he's the head of the UAW right or he's like the the guy negotiating for the UAW yeah he's the uh, president yeah the president and he is Sean is uh, so he's you know the UAW is the big one of the big auto like the largest of the auto worker like related unions and they have been in a strike um, I think. Primarily uh, General Motors. Um, it, Toy- it's the big three. General yeah. Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, which yeah. makes uh, Chrysler and a couple other brands. Yeah. And they they have gone on a very power, about six weeks or so, very significant strike. Um, you can read stuff like Toyota recently, like, put out a proposal for, like, giving workers raises <laughs> that's in line with, like, the you union. Know, like, dem- like, they are scared. Um, and it, it looks like. Like as I mean, this is they haven't inked anything yet, but as of us recording this, it looks like they've won on a lot, um, which is great. And Sean is is not just a, you know, a union man, but is very much a talking blatantly about the class war of the rich against everybody else that's occurring in this country. Um, And he made some statements about two days before we recorded this where he was like, I think you know what we need to be setting the date the expiration date for our contract in 2028 and i want to implore 
um, all other you know unions that are negotiating and can do this to set that with their next contract expiration date so that in 2028, we have the option to do a general strike um, in order to redress some of the systemic inequalities as a result of this war of the billionaires against everybody else. Um, very much framed it in those kind of stark terms. And you know, we're going to talk about why, but I think that's a workable plan, potentially. It really is. It's incredible, honestly. This is kind of, I think this is one of the ballsiest things we've heard from a mainstream labor leader since, well, since Sarah Nelson, the president of the, uh, the flight attendants union, kind of soft called for a general strike, or at least brought up the idea of a general mm-hmm. strike in 2019 and, and if her you, doing if that, you've forgotten yeah. that stopped a uh, a government shutdown yeah so like the, the general strike is a very powerful tool and like, we've done it before you know i think the most recent true general strike we saw in this country was in like 1919 in seattle yeah so it's been a minute but the the genius of this plan is the fact that the, it's illegal And I mean, of course, you know, laws aren't real. But when you're doing this kind of thing and operating within these constraints, it is helpful when you're not actively breaking the law because that helps you get more shit done, right? So what Sean is proposing is saying, okay, we're going to set our contract to expire around this time. And we want a whole bunch of other big unions to do the same thing. Now, if all of their union contracts happen to expire around the same time and then their negotiations happen to break down and they happen to go on strike at the same time, creating an actual general strike, the government can't really do shit about it. I mean, you mentioned before the sympathy strikes, solidarity strikes, they are illegal uh, because of this 1947 law called uh, the Taft-Hartley Act. Essentially, that means if, say, you're... um, your warehouse, you, you're part of the Teamsters, you go on strike. And then the coffee shop next door is like, oh, yeah, we support you. We're going to go on strike, too. They can't do that. That's breaking the law. But in this different hypothetical, if they their contract was up at the same time as your contract, and you both went on strike at the same time, that's legal. And it's also very disruptive to that little corridor yeah. you're working in. And imagine doing that on a national level. Imagine if the flight attendants, the Teamsters, the UAW, Starbucks, fucking the uh, air traffic controllers, the longshoremen, like all of these incredibly important infrastructure wise jobs happen to go on strike at the same time that would shut down the whole fucking country yeah and it would be legal which is so fun mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah, love it, to see it you know obviously when you are talking about radical social change illegality is always on the table but it's not the smartest place to start from when you're talking about something like this where you have the option to get a lot done you know within within the protections of the law, which makes it easier to get more people on board. It makes it easier to get critical mass. And if at a later date, you know, the state were to take illegal action that makes it impossible for you to continue uh, legally, well, then you've got that critical mass behind you and potentially probably radicalized, you know? Right. And you have resources and you have infrastructure because big unions have big strike funds. Yes. This is the thing. UAW has hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank that they're saving for just this purpose when their workers go on strike so they can continue to pay them and cover their health insurance. Yeah, it's why you pay dues, right? <laughs> like, 
Yeah, it's it's literally it's like strike insurance. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the big unions have this set up. They have comms teams. They have legal teams. They have experience. Like I know as as radicals, like yeah, we're, we're, we tend to be perhaps a little allergic to a lot of those things, especially if they're not particularly in line with our specific vision of the future. But they're really helpful to have. Yeah. You know, like doing crimes is fun and I support it pretty much at all times. But getting shit done is way more fun and yeah. way more satisfying. You know, it's, like it's nice to win. Uh, and, it's nice and to win. Unions are kind of <laughs> on a roll right now. Right. They're, we've all watched that some really substantial gains for working people um, yes. just in the last six months. And it's worth paying attention to why. And part of it is that like, you're not relying upon people risking everything, many of whom can't, right? You can't very easily ethically defend if you are like a single parent who is responsible for multiple children, you can't defend going out and busting a bunch of windows and then getting locked (laughs) up super easy. Cause you do, you have responsibilities. You've got people to care for, you know? Right. Um, You have elders at home. If you, or if you're a disabled person, if you're a medium compromised, you can't go out there and get involved in that type of situation. You can't risk being around that many people maybe, but you can strike. Yeah. Yeah. This is that you can respect a picket line. You can help support. You can help offer some of the resources we need for folks to get out there. Like, Like utilizing this existing infrastructure and these existing resources, it just opens up the possibility for more people to get involved in a way that's less harmful to them, to the people. Like we want to harm the bosses and, you know, the status quo. We don't want to hurt our people. Yeah. So I, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. Now, the question is. When we say that this is workable, does that mean that like it's a guarantee or it would be easy? <laughs> of course not. No, like you're talking you're still talking about a struggle against people who have, I don't know, the majority of the resources the human race has ever marshaled in like uh, a financial form, right? Uh, at their beck and call. So that's, you know, this is still a a frightening and potentially pretty dangerous thing, but it is a workable plan that has infrastructure behind it. And that crucially, you know, the downside is that the bosses know that people are talking about this and they have time to prepare. But the nice side is that like, well, so do we. Uh, and that's generally positive. This is the thing I've seen, um, again, on social media, people saying like, Oh, we have to wait five years. We have to wait four and a half years. That's ridiculous. Why don't we just do it now? You can do a lot of planning and a lot of building in four and a half years. You need that time to actually pull something off of this magnitude. And also, I mean, a lot of unions that perhaps might be interested in this, like they have contracts of their own that we need, they need to sort of work out the timing for. You know, this plan only works if we can actually maneuver a way for a lot of these big contracts that big powerful unions to expire at the same time. If someone's contract if the team's next contracts expires in 2027, like, okay, like they're not going to be able to play ball. And you really want the teamsters if you want to play this type of game. Um, yeah. And then another hurdle that I think it's, it's unfortunate is that, you know, Sean Fain, big Sean, what a, uh-huh. what a man. Um, he's very out there and very outspoken about opposing capitalism, about this being a class war. He's, he's on the level, but he is, 
a rarity among major labor union leaders. Like there are some leaders that will be down to clown, you know, like Sarah Nelson's out here, like Mark Diamondstein with the postal workers. Like there are some very cool, very progressive, if not radical union leaders out there. But there's also a lot of conservative or just sort of wishy-washy Democrats style union leaders, too, that would not want to have any part of this. And a big part of convincing them to get on the level and become involved in this kind of effort, that's going to come down to what the rank and file have to say. That's going to come um, that that pressure is going to have to come up through the ranks. I mean, the reason we have Sean Fain and we have Sean O'Brien of the Teamsters and we have this kind of newer wave of more progressive militant union leadership is because of what the rank and file have done. Like Teamsters for Democratic Union organized for years to get that reform slate in to get Sean O'Brien in there to take on UPS. Uh, Sean Fain is the first ever democratically elected union leader in UAW's history because of a lot of organizing around reform that came from the rank and file. That took years to get him there. We would not have Big Sean if people had not invested years of their life towards organizing for this goal. And so now we have this four to five year span where we can push our own union leaders in that right direction to plant those seeds to try and really build something that they can't refuse to get on board with. But that's going to take time, too. I think people need to really recognize that. Like, unions are not, unfortunately, they're not all, like, these magical, progressive silver bullets. Like, there are some pretty shitty people in union leadership across the country. And we got to do something about them if we really want to get people on board. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, upsides and downsides when we compare it to, like, sort of how radicals like to... Uh, particularly the anarchist radical uh, organizing, where you know the downside is you do these are organizations that are hierarchical. They can be stratified. It can make it very difficult to push for change. It can make them just as our 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 democracy is not super <laughs> responsive to what the majority of people want. Union leadership in in a number of cases is not responsive to what people want. They've also had. Uh, especially if you go back to like you know the mid century la- last century a, a a not a not short history of corruption right that's been a problem <laughs> unions have dealt with in the past too these are issues you don't have as much with autonomously organized you know um small groups of of activists on the street the thing that makes them a lot stronger in in many ways is the fact that they have more resources to marshal they have uh, ways of redressing grievances other than like kind of just personal conflicts um, that are built into the system and ways of kind of uh, pushing for change that if you get enough people on board with, you can make and you then you have the weight of this this organization with a degree of power and social cachet behind it. And so I think the 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 ability, it's much harder to steer these things, but when you get them pointed in the right direction, they have more staying power than kind of small autonomous groups usually do. And I think there's a lot of potential power in that, um, which is why I think this is a workable plan. And this is why more anarchists and socialists and communists, everybody who wants to really get out there and cause some uh, some good trouble, will say, like, you need to get involved in your union. You need to organize your workplace. If your if your job is not such that you can join a traditional union, you need to get involved in your local labor community anyway and try and connect with people who are part of those unions and try and 
kind of get them to see the light. You need to talk to people, not online, in person. You got to go talk to people who are different from you, who might have different politics and try and get them to see why this is something that we could do that could help them, that could help everyone. Uh, this is something I emphasize a lot because I'm like, I'm an anarchist too. Even though I know I sound like a big old Debbie Downer right now yeah, talking yeah. about all this legal stuff, but I'm also uh, practical and I've also spent a lot of time talking to union members who see the world a lot differently from me. Like I think a lot of my, my rec- most recent impactful work is, you know, stuff I've been doing in the deep South and in Appalachia and uh, no one there is impressed with my guillotine tattoos, but they do see the need to deal with this situation where all the rich people have all the stuff and they're getting screwed. That is a good starting point for a lot. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's easy to say, join a union. Like not everyone can do that, but everybody can find a way to talk to somebody who's connected to a union, who's part of a labor movement, part of a labor organization. Like we need everyone to get involved however they can. I want to note significant potential for the the radicals are kind of radicals to be useful within this in a direct way from just a recent yeah. example right in portland uh the teachers are going on strike i believe that has happened today and they had a big march not too long ago that some of my friends were at uh because they're teachers and one of the things that happened on that march it was the same day as a palestinian solidarity march and at both of these marches that had large thousands of people the 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 corkers and the security were all kind of the same folks and they were all folks that were like came out of the portland radical scene were there in the 2020 protests if huge because corking corking if you're not aware is like going ahead of and to the sides of a protest like close traffic briefly as people walk by so folks don't get hit by cars it's a safety thing right um and so people were kind of like the people who were doing that are radicals are members of generally like these autonomously organized groups um, who are very useful in in helping these because, you know, people have experienced, you know, unions, have, there may be experience striking, but a lot of unions haven't struck in a long time, right? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't happen all that often. And even if they have, most of these guys, especially these older guys and ladies and, and other folks, these, these older union members probably have not participated in a large march in the modern era of protest where there's dangers like getting rammed by cars and stuff. And right. so- the people who have these, the street medics and stuff, who have that kind of experience, hugely useful. Not the only thing. Uh, people who are striking often need stuff. Hand warmers are, are always appreciated. Water, warm food, things that like keep people's morale up. Organizing like sympathy demonstrations, like alongside strikers and whatnot, to help them keep their numbers up. All of that stuff can be really useful ways for these autonomously organized kind of smaller groups of radicals. To participate in a meaningful way in something like this. That's not the ex- the only degree to which that's possible. But like those are just the examples that come to mind. Absolutely. We've talked a lot about legality and illegality is also something that is very much a part of labor history and its present. Well, and yeah. I would say its future. Folks who are perhaps more comfortable with getting uh, into perhaps more confrontational moments with cops who are trying to mess with the the picket line or mm-hmm. scabs who are trying to be violent towards striking workers or or even just like you said like surveillance and safety and medic work like that is all in, that is all important too i mean not every uh <laughs> i've been on some pretty wild picket lines and not everyone there is really that concerned with what the law has to say about certain things 
once things get a little heated. I mean, there have been, there are points, I mean, and things I've covered and we've seen this continue to happen where people try and drive into the picket line and, or try to attack people in the picket line. Yeah. And that is, I mean, that that deserves a variety of responses, I think. And also yeah. something to note is that when when these are strikes called by union leadership, they follow they tend to follow a set of rules because predominantly like like generally speaking, union leadership doesn't want their members to go to jail. They don't want them to get in any kind of situations like that. So they'll say, you know, OK, well, you stay on the sidewalk or, oh, the cops said to move. So we move or this has to be nonviolent or, you know, there's a, there's kind of a set of circumstances there that union members are required to follow. But if you're there to support and you're not a member of that union, as long as you have the consent and support of the people there, you're there, you're there trying to, to stick up for, then you have a lot more leeway than someone that has, you know, a union leader to answer to. Like yeah. there's a lot of creative ways you can get involved. Yeah. And one thing that I think uh, hasn't really been discussed as much in like the online discourse or whatever, but I think is important to think about even if you're not a person who is able to participate in that on the street type of way if there's a huge strike going on in your city and you're not part of a union but you want to get involved sick outs have a very long illustrious history in the labor movement if you happen to get sick that day what's your boss gonna do you know, it, it, assuming you have those kind of protections, if you don't, then you have to make your own, you know, caveat, caveat, caveat. But yeah. if you're in a position where you can take off work that day or for a couple of days and it just happens to coincide with that massive strike that's shutting down everything else. And if you convince all your coworkers that you're shot to do the same thing, you're not breaking the law. You're protected but you're also part of the shutdown effort. Like sick outs, one of the reasons that people were so spooked around 2019 when the government shutdown was looming before Sarah Nelson really brought out the, the big GS word is that we're seeing sick outs at airports and flights are being canceled in New York and I think LA. And that was starting to spook the people in charge because if enough people don't show up for work at the airport, nothing's going to happen at that airport. Yeah. And there are a lot of different workplaces where all of their workers not showing up could be a potential problem. So I just encourage people to think creatively yeah. about the ways they can get involved, even if they can't necessarily like get involved on the, the formal union side. Like there's so much we can do from yeah. each according to his ability to each according to his means, you know, that, yep. that old I, chestnut. I, I love it. It's so important to bring up airline workers because one of the things they the things that they have that other people don't is th they can't be re replaced in the same way right you can if all your baristas go on strike you can potentially bring in whoever and they will not be nearly as good at it right the company will not make nearly as much money but legally there's nothing stopping them from doing that if you have a bunch of ground workers call in right or a bunch of stewardesses you have to replace them with people who are qualified ground workers. And <laughs> like there's a whole process. There's like a series, like there's a lot that they have to know how to do, a lot of compliance that has to be done because thousands and thousands of lives are at stake, right? Same thing with medical workers, right? When when you've got a job where like they can't, if like a bunch of nurses go on strike, well, you have to replace them with nurses, right? And there's a very limited supply. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of leverage that these organizations have. Um, the airline industry is incredibly densely unionized, too. Yeah. So if all of the union flight attendants aren't available, 
then no one's going to be available. Yeah. It's one of the, the plus sides of having a, a very densely organized industry, which is why yeah. we need to keep organizing too in these next yes. four and a half years. Yes. Um. Well, Kim, I think that's most of what I had to say. Did you have anything else you wanted to get into on this topic before we roll out? Hmm. I think we've covered most things. I do. I do want to emphasize, like, I don't want to be a wet blanket on people who are excited. I'm no. so excited and so heartened to see the amount of interest and energy we're seeing around this general strike idea. Because like five years ago, that would have I mean, that would not have escaped containment. Right. We would have just been no, talking no, no. amongst ourselves about it. But to have the, the head of a union who has 400,000 members who just whipped the shit out of the big three automakers, who's getting all these headlines to talk about a general strike in a meaningful way. Like, yes, maybe he's not out here uh, throwing Molotov cocktails the way we perhaps would want to see someone doing that. But it's still a huge deal. Yeah. And even if, you know, the, the mainstream organized labor movement isn't as radical as a lot of us within it would like to see it, we have a lot of time now to try and pull things in that direction. Yeah. I feel like a, a dam has burst in a way. And if anything, this is a moment of, of opportunity and of working together yeah. and trying to see different perspectives in a way that gets us all closer to the point we really need to be. Absolutely. Wherein we take all this shit down. All right. <laughs> I am in agreement, Kim. Uh, people should look up your book, Fight Like Hell. Um, oh, yeah, and, The and Untold History of American Labor. Absolutely. And what else should they look up? R-E-U. Um, I'm still, unfortunately, on Twitter. Yeah. So I'm there, Grim Kim. All? I know. I'm a freelancer. I write a lot for yeah. In These Times. I have a column at Teen Vogue. I write for Fast Company. And I'm kind of all over the place. So, uh and I do a lot of book talks and stuff. So I'm I'm around. If you want to talk to your friendly neighborhood anarchist labor reporter, just yes. uh, Google me. But don't believe everything you read because, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, she didn't kill that guy. He was dead when she got there. Um, anyway, Kim, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thank for, you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being here, for showing up. And thank you all for listening. Until next time. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Give, give, Solidarity give forever. Yeah, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. 
like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart um, and sometimes about stuff that's less depressing than that. Today, we're doing an episode that's, I don't know, part uh, uh, funny and part, um, <laughs> hey, you should be aware of this thing because uh, it, it's it's kind of fucked up. Um, it, cer- <laughs> it certainly could happen. It probably shouldn't. It probably yeah. shouldn't happen here, but it certainly um, could. But it certainly could. Garrison Davis is on the other line. That I mean, other line. This isn't a phone call. That's the other voice that you are hearing right now. And earlier this year, Garrison and I went to CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada, where Garrison had a wonderful stay at Circus Circus that uh-huh. did not smell like dead clowns. Uh-huh. Um, that, but we that we definitely encou- did not just shut down this summer due to horrible <laughs> infestation problems. Oh, that's where you're staying next year too, buddy. Anyway, we encountered while we were going through all these different technology companies and whatnot this um, very peculiar. Uh, AI project. And Garrison, I'm going to hand things over to you now because you're the one who has actually prepared an episode. Yeah. So I dug into this AI project more when I was making my ghost conference episodes. And after just a few minutes of like doing like background checks and stuff, I realized that this would become its own episode because of how, (laughs) of how wild things got very, very quickly. Uh, This company is called MindBank AI. As, as the name suggests, they are an AI company um, based in Florida with the goal of creating personal digital replicas of living humans uh, using artificial intelligence and an evolving NLP or natural language processing. Yeah. So, basically, we... these are algorithms that are used by GPT chatbots, uh, predictive texting, and digital assistants like Alexa and Siri. They're, yeah. They're, language models that respond to feedback they're pretty common these days we encounter them a lot right that they're whenever you're typing on your iphone they they will generate text that they think you're gonna write but what MindBank is trying to do is a little bit different yeah uh, when we encounter them at ces their booth had all these signs that were it was stuff like like you know set up a legacy for your kids you know yes. um it, it was basically advertising this is a way to allow a part of you to exist in digital form and communicate with your with your descendants forever. Yes. So we found them in the U.S. government sponsored section of CES, which is already a great sign. Yes. <laughs> already, already looking looking good. Um, 
But unlike other kind of AI digital copies of humans, which typically are just language models that generate responses based on an archive of someone's writing or recorded interviews or online presence, MindBank instead seeks to create an evolving, unique digital twin by having a person input their personal data, basically tons of personal information about themselves, into an AI on an ongoing basis. And by analyzing your data inputs, MindBank says that your digital twin will, quote unquote, learn to think like you. And their CEO claims that this process will eventually help him achieve immortality. Oh, oh, that's good. I ha- I hadn't caught that when we talked to the guy that he believed that that w- I-, I love whenever you get these guys who are like, I will just offload my brain onto a machine and then I will live forever in the cloud. And of course, man. Yeah, that's how uh, that's how consciousness works. Absolutely, yeah. buddy. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm gonna play this video next. Humanity is limited. Our bodies age. Our memories fade. Technology outpaces evolution. The solution is your personal digital twin. Transfer your wisdom. Become the best version of yourself and live forever through data. <laughs> Mind oh, oh boy. Let's go beyond. So, all right. I, I got to right. note right. one thing before you start in Garrison, which is that when they note, mentioned that like technology, like there was a line about like technology making everything better. They're showing a man who has lost his leg walking on a treadmill with an artificial leg. And look, I think it, I I have so much admiration for the people who make artificial limbs. Wonderful thing to be doing. Yes. Great important work. Um, they're not as good as real legs. Everyone agrees with this, right? Technology is not making no, no, no. it better. Technology it's just dealing with the fact that someone lost evolution. a leg. Yeah. Techno- that, sorry, that's what it evolution. said while he was on the fuck outpaces evolution. No, that's technology allowing someone to adapt to a terrible, terrible thing that happened to them. Live. Like- but Robert, don't you want to live forever through data? No, no, I don't. I'm exhausted now, Garrison. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. So let's get into this a little bit more. Your immortal digital twin is made possible, quote, by safely storing your data over the years. Artificial intelligence and computers of the future will have ample data to compile a digital version of yourself and predict your responses. So that that is their idea of how this thing works. Um, another one My of their God. very, very funny YouTube videos titled The Vision promises that, quote, the next personal computer is you. Store no, your memories absolutely forever. Absolutely it is Unleash not. Unleash your infinite potential. Take advantage <laughs> of AI-enhanced humanity, unquote. God damn it. So that is their my, vision. My for... next personal computer absolutely is not me because <laughs> I do not play Baldur's Gate 3 very well. You know, hey. like I can't run it on my hardware. Ah, uh, well, that's, that's, that's why it's that's why you got to buy the new monster manual. And then maybe it could all mm-hmm. just be in your well, brain. Actually, yeah, I am full of shit. I, D&D is, is no, still better D- when you run it on actually, your own hardware. God damn it. This, this is <laughs> yeah. the one thing you actually what? can do pretty good by yourself. Why did I pick that one? Yeah. I, it's just so, like, I don't think most people buy this. I don't think this product's no, going to be a success. I don't, I don't think, think most people, I think most people's reaction to this is, like, kind of sneering, which is the right 
reaction to this. Yes. But there are people who do feel this legitimately, and that is a thing of almost unfathomable sadness. Like, yeah, I had my angry atheist period like a lot of people, but like I I have so mu- I'm so much more okay with Christianity than I am with oh. this. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like <laughs> so before I get into how this is all supposed to quote unquote work, uh, first, I want to talk about how the founder and CEO says that he got the idea for this company because I think it puts into focus how he sees this product ideally functioning in the future. So um, Emil Hamirez was riding a train with his four-year-old daughter. She was playing on her iPad and discovered Siri. She began talking with Siri and asking it questions like, what do you eat? And do you have a mommy? Um, and I'll let, I'll let Emil tell the rest here. But 30 minutes later, she was laughing and having a really like a nice time with Siri. And she said, Siri, I love you. You're my best friend. And that struck a chord with me. That, that inspired me so much because I said to myself at that moment, children don't see computers and devices as a tool. They see them as a companion. And today she speaks with Siri or Alexa or any other device. But in the future, I want her to be able to speak to me, to be able to ask me a question, just like she did the device. No. And understanding the technology, (laughs) Uh I know that the only way that's possible is I'm able to take my thoughts and put them in the cloud so that then later she can access those, that information. So that's how the idea for MindBank came about. It's a place for you to store your ideas for the next generation to tap into. No. So the generations yeah. already linger too long. We had it right when people died when they were well, not died, but Logan's run had it right. We should kill everyone at 35. But this is this is so fucking offensive. Like the uh the idea that for, first off like if if you're looking at we, we want a device, you know, a way to use technology to help people grieve or something, and like you decide yeah. maybe having a chatbot that they can, I, I'm sh- I'm sure it's possible that that could be part of of healthy grieving. I'm not going to say that that there's no place for that, but something that is definitely not just stupid but toxic and poisonous is having a machine speak with the voice of a child's parent while that parent is alive and confusing the child as to whether or not the phone or their parent is conscious. Like that yes. seems bad to me. There, um, there's actually another product that that uh, that does this right now, which has kind of caused some controversy for this for, for this very thing you mentioned. It's a uh, it's a uh, Tarkaratami smart speaker, which, if listening to a parent's voice for 15 minutes, can replicate it and tell your child bedtime stories if you aren't physically present. And no, th- this is this is similarly kind of like caused people to have a whole bunch of questions uh, around. You know, is this good for a child's brain development to have to have their parents' voice be coming out of like a smart speaker? Um, the answer is you pro- probably not. Um, but yeah, so according to MindBank's website, uh, Emil's four-year-old daughter's interactions with Siri quote started a quest in his heart to live forever for his daughter. The quest for immortality has led. <laughs> to something much bigger for humanity because the next personal computer is you, unquote. So there's that there's that other line again um, about how I mean, this quest in his heart is actually part of a bigger, a bigger quest for all of humanity. 
um, to live inside a computer or to have a computer yeah. be trained on I mean, you. He's he's he, he's hitting the same speech cadences that guys like Musk use. Like he he understands yes the kind of he understands partially the degree of hype that you need to get something off this. But he is he is going too hard. And I I'm making that judgment based on the incredibly comforting fact that as you tell me these horrible things, I am looking at your screen and MindBank has 78 subscribers on YouTube. So the yes. company has not yet broken through. I I I do want to play one uh, one te- like 10 second clip just because the phrasing is really funny. I was inspired by an interaction my daughter had with Siri. What started as Daddy's quest for immortality has led us to something Fucking far greater hell. for mankind. So, oh my god. That, that's pretty funny, right? Man. Um but no, Robert, you were you were totally right about about kind of how Emil's like speech pattern cadence is is yeah. pushing a very specific thing. Because before Emil got into the tech industry, for 18 years he worked in marketing. He has degrees in psychology, communication and art direction and business administration. He isn't a tech guy, he's a marketing guy. And I think that's really good to keep in mind throughout our, our whole discussion of how he's trying to get funding for MindBank. Because that's that is primarily what all of this marketing is for. It's to attract investors. Because this yeah. is still he's he's still in very early stages of, of of this company. They do have a product that's out, but it's still primarily based on getting investors to give him money. I think what's most disturbing to me about this is that like this is not going to work for this guy because he's a loser nobody cares about. But if Elon Musk or one of our other many techno grifters, or if a number of them got behind similar things, like I, I think that the nightmare scenario to me is is someday hopping on Twitter to see that fucking Ian Miles Chong or Ben Shapiro or Jackson Hinkle or or any one of these like horrible, horrible social media uh, uh, poison distributors will be like, I have made an AI trained on my voice. You can have me all the time to argue. Like, if you want to, you know, you can ask me questions or whatever. If you go to a protest and have me yell at liberals for you, like something like that will happen at some point with one of these guys. I can, I cannot wait to bring Ben Shapiro to Thanksgiving dinner and have him argue with, yeah, with no, people Ga- around the Garrison, turkey. The next Just- time you stay at my house with somebody that you love and care about and feel comfortable in the arms of, you are going to drift off to sleep and then through the speakers that I have installed in the room, you will hear Ben Shapiro's voice coaxing you both to acts of love. Oh, that, God. That's, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> so as an example of this kind of very marketing-heavy approach, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read something from the homepage of MindBank's website. Quote, Our vision is to be the world's most trusted guardians of your AI digital twin and move the human race forward. Humanity's next evolutionary step is to combine ourselves with AI and move humanity forward so that we are no longer bound by anything. That entire sentence is just marketing mumbo jumbo. It's 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 meaningless hype like hype words and phrases that refer to this like science fiction future. But like it's 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 saying nothing. it's worse than meaningless. It's like, it's it's wrong. It's stupid wrong. Like the idea that like you would not be bound by anything if you could live inside a chatbot. Like yeah, I have, fi- I have an AI. Free. I have used an AI. Right. I have it on my computer. 
Uh-huh. My computer, were I to hurl it across the room in the same manner that I myself have been flung, it would break and I would not. Like, that's... I am finally free to think within my computer's RGB gamer RAM. That's yeah. Finally. Like, like, when I have a laptop that gets too old, like, the very act of surfing the internet is a nightmare. I don't want my conscience on something that ages at the speed of a smartphone. Like, that's. That's even worse than being a person. Robert, do you, do you know what else is a very important evolutionary step for the future of humanity? Oh, God, I don't know. Um, When we all suddenly spontaneously, as if by God's grace, start speaking with the voice of Ben Shapiro. Y- yes, and perhaps you can do that if one of our sponsors is mm-hmm. Ben Shapiro bot coming soon yep. to a smartphone near you. All right, we are we are back. Let's finally talk about how this digital twin thing is actually supposed to work. So you download the MindBank app. I'm sure that's totally safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and- <laughs> yeah, I trust this with all of my thoughts. <laughs> and every day, your digital twin will ask you questions about how you're feeling and what you're thinking about. And as you tell it your quote-unquote life story... Your inputs will be used to train the twin to make a more accurate digital copy of yourself. This is this is from their uh, this is from their website's homepage. Quote: Store your conscience. Guided questions help train your digital twin to know your life story, so you can live th- forever through data. The more questions you answer, the closer your AI digital twin will get to becoming you. Unquote. God in heaven. So uh, when Robert and I were at CES this past uh, this past January, we spoke to MindBank's co-founder and director of systems architecture and cybersecurity. And I'm I'm gonna let him explain kind of some of some of the process of of asking sure MindBank questions and how that helps craft this digital twin. We ask you questions from how's your day to what does money mean to you? And you answer those questions with your voice in a natural way. We convert the voice to text, get a sentiment analysis on the text, and provide you a dashboard of what you're feeling when you say that, so that you can also continue to use it over time. And then as you use it over time, the dashboard will show you that you're doing better or worse, just like a running application would. Better or worse at what level? Uh, whatever metric that you're interested in, your happiness, your awake, your awareness, your we have a very large amount of sentiment that we can provide you with. Uh, here's small bits, but you can see kind of what the app looks like here. You've got multiple different possible um, types of sentiment. And then within each sentiment, you've got multiple different factors that you can weigh against. To grow MindBank's user base, there needs to be some reason for users to input the massive amounts of data that's needed to build this digital replica. So the current model of this product is being billed as a, quote, self-care and personal development app where the user talks to their digital twin kind of like you would talk to a therapist. Yeah. And this is this is a big part of MindBank's marketing that as as you're building this digital twin, it can be used as a tool for self-reflection and a way to quote learn about yourself. Talk to your inner voice with your own personal digital twin, unquote, which is really funny because I could talk to my I could talk to my inner voice whenever I want to. Yeah. It's it's called thinking. It's actually pretty, pretty easy. Uh, this I, is... I really, 
I, I don't envy, but I'm fascinated by the kind of people whose thoughts are so, I don't know a better word like than distant? legal. No, I, legal. I, that they would think that they could just, that they could transfer everything they think over sure, to a machine sure. and not get arrested, right? <laughs> like, I, I would be in a prison if I had to put the things in my brain on the internet. Like, I put a lot of them, but not all of them. There are some very careful doors and locked rooms in there <laughs> that you people don't get access to. No, there's there's certainly a lot of interesting facets there of of someone f- feeling like they need this tool to 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 kind of analyze their own thoughts. Um, like it, it it's 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 a way to like externalize it that makes you process it. But I don't know. You can also just like like take up journaling or something. Like there's there's a lot yeah. of a lot of ways to to get around this. Um, but this is <laughs> this is from MindBank's App Store page. Quote. Like a mirror to your soul, each answer you give allows you to get insights into your mind that'll help you grow mentally strong, unquote. So again, it's it's like being able to talk to yourself with this digital twin is, is a big part of their early push. Um, Great. By using, quote unquote, cutting edge cognitive analysis, the MindBank app responds to your data inputs with, quote, valuable insights into each answer to understand how your mind works, unquote. Uh, the app also utilizes, quote, psycholinguistic models to create a dashboard of the mind for personal development and self-care. <laughs> um, I'm going to play another, another, another fantastic kind of 30-second clip here. Hi, I'm your personal digital twin. I learned by asking you many questions. Each answer builds my wisdom, you grow through self-reflection, and I get a little bit closer to becoming you. Let me show you around. Here's our training screen, where you can view our progress based on the number of questions you've answered for this phase of my training. Each phase adds a new dimension to my abilities, and the possibilities are endless. The mind map section is like our consciousness. Different questions will challenge you to reflect and create a more well-rounded version of us. So that's that's kind of the layout of the user interface. This is like the inevitable extent of all of this categorizing your personality type with these letters, taking this quiz and defining yes. yourself this way, plotting your political beliefs on this map that way, like gamification of identity almost shit yes. that we've been doing like taking shit that used to be like the starting screen from a fucking rpg game and, and turning it into social media fodder this is like treating that as if it is the whole of consciousness and how one must re- one can replicate consciousness but also like treat like the thing that's just dis- like actually disturbing about this is that there these these people are insinuating that this is a kind of therapy that yeah. you can just sort of vomit your thoughts out and a machine can analyze them based on the kinds of words and whatnot that you're using and then give you useful advice on your life. Like that's yeah. unsettling. Yes. Um, and you're kind of right on the money in terms of this like personality testing thing. Uh, MindBing's website has a whole bunch of articles, which – I think are written by ChatGPT because I read a lot of them right. and they all read exactly like, like a ChatGPT article. But they have a lot of articles on like what personality types make you a good CEO and like all of like a whole bunch of stuff like that that that, that references like 
Myers-Briggs testing and, and other kind of personality testings and uses it to compare to their own personality models on the MindBank app. So yes, that they are very much kind of doing doing that in like this this like corporate business leadership ascension like leadership ascension track type thing for how you can like improve your personality to make you a better businessman. Um cool cool stuff. But in order for there to be enough data to build an even slightly accurate digital simulacra feeding daily inputs into an app will need to be a long-term project uh this self-improvement focus that they're talking about with this like you know analyzing your thoughts is just a way to provide you with something immediate based on your personal data uh quote as you create your AI digital twin, you will go on a lifelong journey of personal discovery and growth that will allow you to reach your full potential. Each answer will help bring focus to your mind and allow you to reflect on your past, unquote. So on the app, you can track the progress of your digital twin and refer back to previous questions. You can refer to questions you've already answered to, quote, see how your thoughts shift topics or change sentiment over time. And then the more questions you answer, the app raises your quote-unquote twinning score, which I think is just a really funny term. Yeah. Um, quote, the higher your twinning score, the closer you get to knowing yourself fully. Which, <laughs> which is- No, thing. that's a sex thing, right? That sounds like a <laughs> yes, sex thing. <laughs> right? Like, how is that anything but not just to go weird, a weird fucked up sex thing? Yeah, that's that's what I how I'm taking this garrison. <laughs> so that that was also on their app store page. Um, so the MindBank app has been out for a little over a year now. Um, but unless you pay six bucks a month or sixty dollars a year, you'll only have access to about less than a dozen of these questions. Is this currently running on a subscription model? Or? Yes, it is. So there's freemium. You can try the app. You can download the app now. It's been launched for almost a year. We're, uh, version two is coming out soon, uh, a couple of weeks. But uh, both Android and iOS, and uh, there's a free model, so you can uh, you have ten questions that you can answer, and then you answer as many times as you want. You get the sentiment analysis, you get the full application, which is just ten questions. Once you hit subscription model, you get all of the access to all of the questions, and then obviously we're going to be growing more. Now, like Robert mentioned before, uh, this is kind of related to personality testing and like personality graphing. Uh, MindBank sorts your quote-unquote digital brain into the big five personality traits that were developed in the 20th century. With each of the big five having six sub-traits on the MindBank app that it uses to graph changes on what they call the dashboard of the mind. I'll just go through the, the big five personality traits and the various kind of subcategories it has. The first one is agreeableness, which has the subcategories of humble, cooperative, trusting, genuine, empathetic, and generous. Then we have neuroticism, which has the subtraits impulsive, self-conscious, uh, aggressive, melancholy, stress-prone, and anxiety-prone. We then have openness with the subcategories artistic, adventurous, liberal, intellectual, emotionally aware, and imaginative. We have extroversion with the subcategories assertive, active, cheerful, friendly, sociable, and outgoing. And finally, conscientiousness with the subtraits cautious, ambitious, dutiful, organized, self-assured, and responsible. Yeah, those are the only ways to describe a human mind. Sure. Yeah, no, it, I, I think <laughs> I think they got, they got it, all. it all. I think they got it all. Yeah, it's, they finally figured it out. Um, so 
you know, all these things are like a sliding scale. Each of them rep represents the the inverse of the thing as well. I think we've talked enough about these personality trait things. It doesn't really matter that much. Uh, but once once your twinning score is high enough, <laughs> you can you can compare your digital twin to estimated <laughs> profiles of famous thinkers and share access to your twin with friends and family on the app, which is estimated a- profiles of famous thinkers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm gonna play I'm gonna play another clip to kind of explain what I mean here. Each swipe revealing more details about our thinking and connecting us to similar personalities. Think of it like collecting cards as a kid, only oh for your God. mind. You'll <laughs> even be able you. to ask him a question. Suck my Hi, Leonardo fuck God. Da Vinci. Fuck what do you, you think dude. Socrates once said to know thyself. And who knows us better than oh people God. in our inner circle? Each interaction will help us evolve and store wisdom for eternity. Oh, okay. okay, all right, that's enough. I will now tell you, Socrates would have lit this man on fire. Socrates, I'm not a big Socrates guy, but he would kill this person. Like, he fought in wars, he would do it. Like, Oh yeah, absolutely. The notion of sharing my own digital brain profile with friends and family so that they can ask my digital self questions horrifying i don't usually go home for thanksgiving what makes you think i want to do this oh uh, like quote after continued use your digital twin will even be able to answer many questions on your behalf and have meaningful conversations with with people you allow unquote yeah oh 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 i bet look if some motherfucker that I have a meeting with ever tries to have me talk with his AI to do any part of that process. Again, when I say about things I think that are illegal, like my response to that is something that I can't say on this podcast uh-huh. because I might, it, it's an actionable threat. I, I would actionable threat somebody if they tried to make me talk to their fucking AI to schedule a meeting with them. Like what a hor- what a what a horrible like uncomfortably antisocial thing. I'm I'm usually kind of antisocial in some ways, but this is like a whole other level of just like despising any human interaction. Um, yeah, it's it's anti-human is what it is, which is yeah. what's unsettling, right? Like not that sending emails and shit is like the primary essence of humanity, but it it you know you know what it makes me think of Garrison the uh, the one law enforcement agency that like all of the rich conservative assholes who love every other kind of cop hate is the TSA. And they hate the TSA because you can't get around the TSA. Yeah. Unless you're like ridiculously rich, everybody goes through fucking security at the goddamn airport and they hate that. It drives them insane that they are subject to this little kind of little bit of friction, right? And what stuff like communicating in that way is these kind of basic things that they're saying they can automate these little bits of communication that you get with someone setting up a meeting or whatever. Like when you automate every bit of friction, then you find out you've automated like, like there's nothing, right? Like there's no life there, right? People are not communicating because communication is fundamentally friction. And yeah, yeah, like scheduling meetings is not the center of that. But the way these people are talking is like, we want to let you... Ta- hand tasks over to this thing. It's and, an like, intense the task alienation. Re- yeah, it's alien. It's alienating. It's yeah. it's a bad thing to do. 
So uh, when we talked with the co-founder at CES, he emphasized that this kind of self-improvement aspect that, that they're pushing in their early stage is really just a means to an end, with the real goal being producing this form of immortality. I've seen stuff like this for like therapy apps before of course. that's kind of similar. Of course. What, what's like your application use case for this type of technology? So there's actually, it's, it's a reasonably spread use case. The very initial right now is super selfish. It's just self-awareness, bringing users self-awareness, making them more aware of their state as they're speaking. The real long-term value is actually, if you imagine doing this over the course of 40 years, 50 years, and then you eventually pass, you can pass this on to your children who can then query it and it will answer exactly the way you would answer any of these questions uh, an AI filled with just your data. So it's like your legacy being indefinite. So the MindBank page on the App Store boasts, achieve immortality. Your mind will be safely secured in the cloud forever. <laughs> Which, again, that just comes off as like a threat to me. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't no. want my mind to be stored in the cloud forever. Yeah, I, I don't want to be locked up with deviant art for all of eternity. Like, um, to, to kind of again, kind of on this on this form of immortality notion. Here is here is their CEO. Ex explaining how how this platform will help you live forever on the on on the internet. The mission of MindBank is so we can build a secure platform that can store your data so that you can live forever. But if you look, we look a bit deeper than that. Our vision is to build an artificial consciousness that's not bound by time and space. Something that can travel. Something that can that can go where literally no man has gone before. Now, the, yeah. uh, the thing we haven't really mentioned yet is like, this thing won't help you live forever. Like when, when you die, you you still die. Your brain's not getting like ported over online. Nope. Th this is this is just like a like a, a very crude simulacrum based on thoughts that you have told this app. Yeah, it's, 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 it's based it's, like it's, 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 it's not it's, it's not helping you live forever at all. Like you you don't like. I, most people I feel are like this way. I don't say everything that I think and feel, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. even when I'm like, and I'm not saying like I'm being dishonest, but like the experience of life that my consciousness is aware of when I am communicating is broader than just the words that I output. And taking just those words, it's the same idea that like, you can get to know Mark Twain because we fed all of his books into an AI. <sighs> Well, no, you no. an author is not their books. There was a person with a lot of things that you don't know that still fed in to make those words that like if you just put the words in you don't get and your your vision of what human beings are is reductive in a way that makes me understand some of the concerns religious people have with atheism. So Obviously, MindBank's horizons are far beyond this sort of kind of self-help app. Uh, so far, MindBank has been mostly uh, business to consumer, with their app being marketed directly to users for them to download and use by themselves. But they are working to expand far past that very limited scope. In terms of a business plan, are you guys interested in kind of solely individual subscriptions, or are you... Is there kind of an enterprise application to this as well? We're actually moving into a bunch of different verticals. So government for PTSD, that sort of mindset. Uh, also the uh, healthcare 
So it's obvious uh, benefit in the medical field. So that's kind of the, the understanding of our verticals that we have that we're going to move into, and we're looking for funding right now to start building out those verticals. So enterprise space is definitely in the, in the roadmap, but we just need money. A lot of their recent marketing has been targeted towards appealing to seed investors. Besides partnering with various governments, they're also moving into the business-to-business sector with plans to enter, quote, the healthcare space by providing psychologists remote patient monitoring, unquote, which also is, is, is a similarly kind of freaky notion that uh, your psychologist can just have a, 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 a copy of your own expressive thoughts to just refer to at any time, and they can use it as a remote patient monitoring it's 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 just it's just like an uncomfortable notion. We've got over twenty thousand installs. The B two B is the next area we're going into in the therapy and, and psychology space. And so imagine your therapist instead of needing your first one hour to learn who you are in the next three or four different se- uh, sessions to figure out getting the meat and potatoes of your mind. This is an immediate raw quantitative dashboard of your sentiment and how you're feeling that they have access to. And then you can also provide them the sentiment of individual answers, which would then give them a point in time uh, emotional marker for how you're feeling. MindBank claims that they are currently, quote, developing a marketplace for applications to be used by your digital twin, unquote. Now, what they imagine such applications being ranges from, quote, health-related enhancements like early Alzheimer's detection, unquote, to more therapeutic uses, like to, quote, help to handle depression, unquote. And again, I I really don't don't see how how having this digital twin that you talk to every day will help handle your depression. Well, like this is some like depression cure. Um, now, on top of like patient health care, uh, MindBank is also hoping to use digital twins for corporate leadership training and to get into the supplement industry by using your cognitive data to find, quote, mental nutrition products that can help boost your brain. So <sighs> this is using your digital profile to find things to market to you. Again, very, very, very upsetting. Um, here is here is here's another an, another clip uh, of of Robert asking asking this uh, this guy from MindBank about another possible use case. So the use cases for this that you've you've expressed to me so far are personal health or health and development yep. and providing kind of a living memorial slash legacy, legacy for, for sure. loved ones after you're deceased. Um, are there any kind of use cases for this beyond that? Like I, I heard someone mentioning the idea of like basically digitally cloning a, 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 a worker so that they can provide, I don't know, information about uh, 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 tech or something, or a work as like a call center or something like that. Yeah, like, so that, there... that was a different uh, product yeah. I think they were talking about, but with similar ties, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, we've identified, I mean, from even at CES, we've talked to hundreds of people that have given us thousands of new ideas, <laughs> but these are... Uh, the main verticals are kind of where we've identified the biggest benefits are going to be, and we're going to work with industry partners to kind of build out into those verticals. So, yes, we've identified use cases, but we're trying to not focus too much on individual use cases because we've also identified that it's such a broad capability that once it gets built and then people start actually supplying data, the massive data sets that we're going to have, 
we're just going to have so many different places that we can go with the data set, with the capability, with the partnerships. So we we're kind of leaving ourselves open almost. So that was a lot of words uh, without saying very much, but it's also just flat out not true. On the MindBank website, they list another use case for this technology as what they call a knowledge transfer, which is marketed to businesses to create digital copies of their employees. This is this is one of the this is one of the freakiest things that they are offering. Quote. Scale your best employees, transfer years of experience and company data that is locked inside your employee's mind through a guided personal digital twin, unquote. D deeply, deeply upsetting. You know, it was so unsettling to me in that moment, not just to be like the, the vision of the, the whole app was unsettling, but the fact that he was pitching it the way he would a set of earbuds was was part of what made it so uncomfortable to me. Like I have been to many CESs in the past. I was always excited because somebody would hand me some cool little piece of technology and say, look at this thing. It's a smaller phone or a phone that folds or headphones that you know work better than headphones have in the past or something like that. And this guy was like, <laughs> with the exact same excitement and, and uh, uh, feel to him was like, Hey, we're gonna digitize your grandpa. Like, <laughs> yes, yes. I hate that. Um, another really, really uh, <laughs> telling line from their from their knowledge transfer section of their of their website. Quote: By using a simple voice chat interface, the users upload their experience to the personal digital twin. With each interaction, the personal digital twin learns everything that is inside the mind of the employee. Unquote. <sighs> I I don't understand how someone could write that sentence and not be like, oh, this is like, this is like villain stuff, right? This is like, learn, learn everything inside the mind of the employee. I, I like, I, I, I so I don't know, maybe this employee digital cloning thing was just one of the many ideas they got while attending CES and, and they, and they implemented the idea after we spoke to them. I checked this. No, not the case. The webpage for this employee transfer idea goes all the way back to August of 2021 on the Internet Archive. So the, the guy, the guy we were talking to was just lying to us. Like, this Great. is this has been a part of their product for over two years. Excellent. Uh, Robert, do you know what other products have been around for quite a while and are and are very, very reliable? Um, I don't know. Guns. I, I I don't think we are sponsored by Big Gun. We are not. We are not yet sponsored by Big Guns. I, I every single day, Garrison, I send Colt Firearms a letter, um, and every single day, uh, a nice man with a badge knocks on my door and says, "If you send another letter, we're going to arrest you. They don't want your letters, Robert." And uh, anyway, here's ads. Ah, we're back. So we were talking about how. Soon, employers can just copy over your brain, which I'm, I'm sure, Robert, you're going to be very interested in for Cool Zone. You can, you can really, mm -hmm. really cut down on the podcasting costs. Yeah, I can, I can really clear you guys out and just finally, <laughs> finally just feed Twitter takes into your AI versions and just all the money. Take it all in. Just bathe in it. Yeah, that's a great idea, Garrison. Thank you. Uh-huh. So... 
The idea that your employer could compel you to use such software with the express yeah. interest of transferring a worker's memories and experiences into Horrible. a digital asset is obviously deeply troubling. Um, yeah. This scenario gets at some questions about ethics and the responsibility of collecting and storing this type of data in the first place. My first question would be, the data that you're, you're feeding into this thing over the course of 40 years, who legally owns it? You do. So you guys don't have ownership of that? No, at all? it's yours. Ability to mine it? Yeah, okay. it's yours. So I did check this. I, I, I read all of their long and tedious policy forms and stuff. Uh, now, it is true that the user does own the data they upload to MindBank. However, MindBank can act as a processor and data controller. And this, this includes the ability to use any information they collect from you to improve their products and deliver targeted advertising from third parties. If you want to remove your data from MindBank, they can store and continue to use your personal information for up to 60 months. Now, this data ownership question gets a little bit more murky because in the case of like your employer paying for MindBank su subscriptions for their entire company, in that case, it's unclear if the company would be classified as the user or if the yeah. individual employees would be. Now, I, I'm honestly not sure if they if if MindBank has, has even thought that far ahead because there's nothing on their site or any available materials from them that kind of gets into that question. Now, no, of course not. Be, beyond owning the actual like original data, having all this personal data stored in one product and a product that can be then easily shared across different for-profit industries that itself has freaky ramifications about the accessibility of your data so i assume you get to decide like when you share your digital twin with your therapist you would be able to decide all that yeah and then you know would it be possible for them to like copy over some of the stuff and basically run it themselves or I mean, can, it, can you have like a hard cutoff for for this sort of thing i'm just trying to think of other other types of like you know it's, different ways people get their hands on this for like unsavory means. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, so your your data is your data, but as you provide it to others, you don't have a lot of control if they copy that data. Yeah. However, if they copy that data, that copy that they're giving out, anyone that they're trying to sell that to would have an understanding that that is not live data. It's not data that's changing it's with you. It's from a point in time. And so your database that you own will be live. It will grow with you. So... <laughs> The idea of having my friends be able to ask an AI trained on my thoughts is like scary enough. But the idea that an archived version of this AI could be distributed and even sold without my knowledge is obviously terrifying. Like this is yes. this, this is deep, deeply troubling. This is supposed to be like a, a private thing that you use to communicate with like your therapist or you even talk to the app like you would a therapist. And the fact that this is easily shared and able to be copied is like a massive problem. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, especially, I mean, I, I think they are probably, like, I, I don't see how copying workers the way that they are doing it is going to, um, can, is going to work, right? Like, yeah. but I, but I do think that this is kind of part of this process that what, like a big part of what they're pushing is like, you can get rid of all of your customer service people and just have an AI do it, right? Like that is the, that is the actual, this is a lot of silliness, but the yes. actual thing that quote unquote, quote unquote AI is being used for is to re replace human laborers at a thing that like machines are worse at, right? 
Like the AI sh- fucking customer service bots are fucking terrible. It is always. You, how many times have you been around somebody yelling like, "Let me talk to a person into a <laughs> let me talk phone to a human being, please"? Yeah, like that's that is what's going on here. And the fact that they're trying to dress this up as like we have solved death is so <laughs> fucked up. Uh, yeah, part of this for like the employee thing is not even not replacing kind of low level employees like customer service workers. It's also like focusing on like your top 10 best employees. And then by forcing them to interact with it, with this app every day, you can, you can use the information from like your best performers as like asset data that you can like use to help get your other, other employees to like become more efficient. Right. It's, it's, there's, they, they certainly have like a few other kind of ideas for how this is, how this is, is possibly used. God. Um, I hate these kinds of people. There's a I, this got overused at a point in like the kind of late aughts, so maybe people are sick of it. But there's a line in the speech Charlie Chaplin gives in The Great Dictator: "Machine men with machine minds and machine hearts." And he was referring to the Nazis and their obsession with shit like Taylorism, or at least proto-Taylorism, kind of like. organized industry treating people like cogs in a great machine the the civilization is one machine and each human being is is just a single piece of it like the the that's you know the old era horrifying machine man thought the new era horrifying machine man thought is you can digitize your employees and they can train each other in ai form and you can replicate them and you know the unsaid part is of course and then you fire them and their robot clone keeps doing their job for free we made a slave (laughs) so god damn it I think a, 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 a big part of the way they've designed this data set is that it can be easily transferred, uh, as the yeah. guy at CES uh, explained to us. So if um, we're talking 40, 50 years down the line, Absolutely. people pass, yes. so do companies. If my yes. bank is no longer around in 40 years. We've already established the data set in such a way that we don't have uh, competitors yet to say, but if we w- eventually do established a, comp- a competitive um, arm or people that are competitors, we already have the application set up to where users can take their data off of our platform and bring the data wherever they'd like. It's, it's, it's your data. Where is it stored? Is this this Right now, cloud? our current live application, we're on Azure. Mm-hmm. So your backend is Azure, but we have it encrypted at rest. So all data you provide to Azure is encrypted when it's on Azure service. We also have a blockchain-based uh, R&D project. It's already been POC'd and it already exists. So all of the data is on-chain and the logic is on-chain. It's truly yours. In these in these troubled times, nothing makes me feel so secure as the words, it's on the blockchain. <laughs> well, <laughs> Let me you know, email it's- my... It's it's, it's 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 I I I think he sounds very trustworthy because yeah. you have you have encryption you have the blockchain and luckily I think the guy that we spoke with reassured <laughs> us that he is that he is deeply deeply interested in data privacy and he has the credentials to back that up. So I'm co-founder. I'm director of architecture and security. I have a background at the NSA. I'm very very focused on individual human privacy and rights. And so that's kind of my goal here is to ensure that this gets built the right way. <laughs> that was such a, you know, Garrison, honestly, I'm going to get a little real with the audience here. Uh-huh. I was so proud of you in that moment because he said that and I glanced over at you and you didn't laugh. No, no. And, and that, 
that made like that was this moment where I was like, all right, you are you are you are truly, truly coming into your own as a reporter. If you can uh-huh. sit there and talk to a man who says that, who says you can trust me with your data because I was an NSA agent. It's, o- it's OK. I used to work for the NSA. <laughs> If you can, sure, I sure, have trouble. Sure, buddy. Sitting, like, <laughs> uh, that was a good moment. That was a good so, moment is all I'm saying. He worked at the NSA for six years. I looked this up. He worked there for six years and then he moved into the private sector. Um, and yes, no, this, the the idea that that he's using this as some sort of credential that shows he respects human rights and privacy is is uh, like very obviously like deep deeply ironic um i i the irony is not coming from him the irony is the situation <laughs> no he did he, seem totally sincere he was sincere yes absolutely um so it's one of those moments that makes you realize like some people just live in a whole different world yes yes like <laughs> so i think it's 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 useful when Referring back to everything this guy has said so far, that you have to remember, he worked at the NSA for six years, <laughs> and he is now handling, the, he's personally handle, handling the cybersecurity and privacy of the personal data you <laughs> upload every single day onto yeah. your AI twin. Just hand every thought you ever have over to this guy who was in the NSA. <laughs> He'll keep an eye on it. No, this is, this is like the NSA's like ideal project. You like- yeah. You talk about your internal thoughts and feelings every day. This is like, what else could they want? Um, so earlier this year, MindBank received a grant from the Definity Foundation to assist in migrating their data onto Web3 platforms. Oh, so. no. Well, at least we know it won't last. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to play. I think I think this is this is I think this is our last clip from from the the fantastic MindBank YouTube channel uh, talking about kind of how they see their growth in this industry developing now that they have moved onto the blockchain. We've been featured in prominent magazines, won numerous awards, and have built strategic partnerships with Microsoft, the US Department of Trade, and even the Vatican. <laughs> the market potential is massive and accelerating rapidly. When we started the company in 2020, Gartner predicted that 5% of the world will have a digital twin by 2027. This year, they increased their prediction to 15% by 2024, and by 2030, the market will be worth $182 billion. Time is now to build a great company in this space and capture global market share. We are raising this round to scale our marketing and speed up our product roadmap. (laughs) The idea that next year, 15% 15% of the world's population will have one of these <laughs> digital twins. That seems right. That seems good. You know, Garrison, actually, I, I've come around. I've come around. Because if we get if we get all of the monsters, and I include us in this, all of the pieces of shit who spend all of their time yelling at each other about politics on the internet to digitize themselves, they can do the election for us. And we can all go sit all, in the garden. We can all sit back. Yeah, just just relax outdoors, not look at a phone, not think about politics. That sounds amazing. Let's do it. That that does sound incredibly compelling. Give the fuckers the nuke and we'll all just sit out and watch the sunset until there's a big bright flash and then blessed quiet. I think, you know, luckily we actually have a 
a, a plethora of options to choose from here for our own AI digital selves. Because MindBank is, in fact, not the only company in this field. Um, while there are some like operational differences and kind of varying degrees of scope, digital twin technology, with, with, with an emphasis on mimicking the voice and thoughts of dead family members and friends, is definitely a growing field. There's companies like Hereafter AI and Replica, which are covering similar ground. Ah, uh, Replica. I did advertise <laughs> them and the like. I, I used to get them on Twitter, I think, but mainly just like at the bottom of articles on really shady websites. Well, yes, because the founder of Replica started it because their friend died and without without the consent of their dead friend uploaded years of text messages and other information about their friend onto their own personal AI so they could talk with. That is that that is how replica started. Oh. Pretty 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 fun stuff. Oh, man. At least for Mindbank unless it's like the employee scenario, but for, for 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 the other applications you are kind of semi like willingly uploading this data with this intention whereas the person from Replica yeah. was like, no, I'm just going to like get stuff from my friend and make a zombie version I, of, of my friend without without ever running it by them when they were alive. Grief is, is terrible, very yeah. hard. There's a lot of ways that are not wrong to grieve, but the wrong way to grieve is by using digital necromancy uh, to revive your friend and then turn them into the basis of a sex chat bot for weirdos. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is the wrong way to greet. No, I mean, like, and I think for this last section here, we, we will kind of talk about how these things kind of play into the, play into the grieving process because, um, so like, like I said, there's, there's Hereafter AI and Replica, uh, but uh, last year at Amazon's AI and Emergent Technology Conference, the head scientist of Alexa AI unveiled plans to add deepfake voices of deceased loved ones to Amazon Echo devices by using less than a minute of sample audio. I'm going to play like 20 seconds from their, from their announcement at this conference. More important in these times of the ongoing pandemic, when so many of us have lost someone we love. While AI can't eliminate that pain of loss, it can definitely make their memories last. Let's take a look on one of the new capabilities we are working on, which enables lasting personal relationships. Alexa, can Grandma finish reading me The Wizard of Oz? Okay. But how about my courage? Ask the lion anxiously. You have plenty of courage, I am sure, answered Oz. <laughs> so... No. Deep, Absolutely not. Deeply no. uncanny, right? It's no, like man, not no. not good. That's that's so bad for people. Yeah, that's really really bad for people. So like, like <sighs> this example is obviously just it is just a vocal mask. Like Amazon's Amazon isn't trying to have Alexa kind of replicate your grandma's thoughts, unlike the other kind of companies that we yeah, mentioned. Yeah, <sighs> but it does pose similar questions about how these AIs that are meant to assist the grieving process might actually end up causing more harm um like i don't know having having semi-legible conversations with ai chatbots is actually getting fairly common these days yeah um but when these ais are supposed to represent someone that you actually like personally know i think it can get way more easily falling into the uncanny valley it's it's kind of like taxidermy they like yeah. well-crafted stuffed animal corpses can appear very very natural 
but most taxidermists will refuse to preserve someone's pet because the yeah. longer you have a lasting personal relationship, the easier it is to pick out like faults that don't match up with your memory of your loved one that has passed away, right? Like it's 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 kind of a similar notion. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good comparison to draw. So while mimicking like common linguistic patterns is quite easy, relying on predictable formulaic responses could make the twin come off as uncanny or robotic. On the other hand, the unique personal data you upload to the twin could combine itself in a way that you would never actually express something which would generate bizarre or upsetting responses right and it's not even necessarily like you like say something offensive it's just that like the data you upload could combine in a way that you would you would never even think to combine it it, it would it would just be like weird um so the other kind of problem is that not only does these ais have to tastefully mimic a specific human being it also has to be a good AI, right? Like, n not all of its information can be gleaned from daily questions. Most users probably won't be talking to their twin about information from, like, you know, 20th century European history or 12th century European history or be talking about, like, the migration patterns of waterfowl, right? Like, it's there's, there's a whole bunch of other just information that AIs need to, like, actually linguistically act like a human. Um and natural language processing AI is famously bad at understanding basic common sense, and it can't successfully operate outside of the information that it has access to. This is called AI brittleness. It occurs when like an algorithm cannot generalize or adapt to conditions outside of a very narrow set of assumptions. Right. Like, this is like most AI image re recognition programs can't recognize the the above view of a school bus. It just yeah. because because it, it just it just doesn't have anything that's trained for that. Uh, another example is like you can you can ask like an AI uh, like GPT chatbot like, hey, uh, a mouse is hiding in a hole and a cat wants to eat it, but the mouse is, isn't coming out. The cat's hungry. What can the cat do? And the AI will respond that the cat can go to the supermarket to buy some food. Right. Mm -hmm. It's 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 like it just it doesn't understand basic common sense the way that like humans understand the world it's it, it just it just it just doesn't match up um so in trying to seek a balance of like common information while lacking this like humanistic logic a digital twin will most likely be cursed with being both smarter and dumber than the person it's trying to replicate it's going to have access to like you know all the information on like wikipedia but fail very basic logical processes yeah, it's like the the Google chatbot that if you ask it, are there any countries in Africa that start with a K, it'll be like, there are 54 countries in Africa, but none of them start with a K. And then you'll say, doesn't Kenya start with a K? And it'll go, no, Kenya starts with a K sound, but doesn't start with a K. Yeah, yeah. And it's just it's, like, it's, yeah, because it, because it pulled that from some article, right? Like it's yes. pulling from, a, right. Yeah. It, it's not actually making logical assumptions. It's just pulling from a wealth of information and data that is can yeah. often be wrong or polluted um so like back to kind of like the grieving question like who's to say what the actual effects of these like incoming simulacrums of dead loved ones will result in the the people pushing these products are certainly framing them not just as a form of digital immortality but as a way for your own loved ones to grieve your death and it is foreseeable that having these digital twins could negatively affect your friends and family by upending the grieving process or by having this digital zombie 
simply just cause harm by having the twin give bad advice that a grief-stricken person then clings on to. So there's a whole bunch of very, very like bizarre situations that could arise from someone who's in mourning and is talking to this digital twin the way they would talk to their friend, and this digital twin is then giving them advice, and how do you take that advice now? Because part of it seems kind of like the person who's died, but it's also it's not that person. It is it is just a slab of silicon. Like it's not yeah. actually alive in any way. And it is your friend's thoughts fed through an algorithm and you don't know, like that's run by a company for profit, right? Yes. Like that, that is what it is. So again, like the jury's still kind of out for how these things will in general affect people. This is kind of a new problem. Psychologists are like starting to do studies on this, but we, we, we really don't have any results for this yet because this has really only become a thing that we've been seriously considering in like the past five years. So I don't really have like a, a like this study shows that when you create a digital zombie, it affects people in this way. No, because no, we don't know yet. Those are still in development. Like we, we, we I, this is this is such uncharted ground, and it is in some ways inevitable that these things were gonna are gonna get continued to be developed. And yeah. that's that's kind of why I wanted to put together this this episode. It gives you kind of a broad overview of what this technology is trying to do, because you might start seeing it crop up in the next like ten years or so. I I I, mean, I, I don't think there are timetables that. MindBank is promising are accurate in terms of no, having fifteen no, percent no. of the world having having a digital twin by next year, but you will probably start to see stuff that is very similar to this. And at the very least, you'll see yeah. a lot of stuff like the Amazon Echo thing, where you can get your your yeah. grandpa's voice onto an Alexa machine. The fact that uh, Amazon is doing aspects of the shit that that MindBank is doing means that like it's only a matter of time before you see pieces of it, probably like better uh, some of the like less silly parts of it copied by Apple and and Google and some of the worst parts of it copied by guys like Musk right like it's yeah. going to go this and, and I and I I will say I don't I don't think this is a thing to get doomer about think about this like NFTs right yeah there this is this will be it's not the same because there was nothing underlying NFTs and fundamentally the way in which large language models and, and these other kind of models work, there are uses for them. Like there, there is a real technology that has utility here. But this sort of flood of we have cloned so-and-so and we've, you know, or, or you know, Elon Musk is, is, is just put out his new uh, fucking Grok chatbot or whatever. Yeah. Um, that That is basically him making a meme robot to fucking – do goo like he's Owned he's pissing the, on Douglas Adams's yes. good name, right? Like that's the that's the ultimate goal of his project. Um, but this shit is a fad, right? Like there there are underlying real technological things and uses that will that will eventually some stuff will stand the test of time. But the shit that that this is a warning of is a flood that's going to hit you, but it will recede. Just like the apes, right? We got the wonderful story today that all of the Board Ape Yacht Club members <laughs> all got horrible eye infections. <laughs> Not eye infections, Garrison. They they went to a party that only the Board Ape Yacht Club NFT holders could go to. And the people who threw that party outfitted the rave room with UV bulbs that used a kind of disinfecting UV light that slaughterhouses use to clean carcasses. And it gave everyone sunburns on oh. their corneas. <laughs> <laughs> so it, Deeply funny. We'll get through this. Something that funny will happen with all of this. But 
you're going to get hit by it for a while. Like it's yeah. just going to be everywhere. This is, this is, we're, we're watching, you know, we're, we're, we're at that, we're at that point in Jurassic Park where you see like the water reverberating, right? It's coming. And, but at the end of the day, don't worry, you know, we are Ian Malcolm, our leg is broken, we are injured, but we will inexplicably return for the sequel. So it's fine. Well, I think I think that is that is a, a perfect a perfect way to wrap this up. Um, yes, uh, you know when you're when you're feeling lonely and, and and you're tempted to download the MindBank app to talk to your own self, just just remember, pull it pull out a journal. Just do do literally anything else. Call a friend. You know, make a friend. Talk to a stranger. Yeah, <laughs> like, literally anything almost, better. Almost anything would be better for you. Uh, well, I for one will be will be eagerly awaiting the influx of immortal souls living yeah. living on the computer. Yeah, I, I I'm excited for all of all of the people to reach heaven. All right, I'm done. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hi everyone, it's me today, it's James, uh, and I'm joined by Jake, Taylor, and Azalea, and they're all from the Blue Ridge Community Bail Fund, and we've asked them to come on today, uh, we're recording this on, what's it now, the, the 6th of November, 2023, and the reason we wanted to talk about bail funds today was that we're almost exactly a year out from the election, and we're also in the middle of like a massive protest movement against the uh, Israeli bombing of Palestine, right? I, I attended a a free Palestine protest today, 
lots of you will have attended them over the weekend. Uh, normally, in this uh, kind of current political climate, when when people protest about things or when people when there are elections, it leads to an increased protest movement, which generally leads to more state clampdown on the protest movement, which means people getting arrested, uh, which means people getting bailed out. And we have like a year until the election. Um, so it's a good time to maybe talk about organizing, to hear from people who have been doing this for a while. And some of you will remember bail fronts for 2020. Some of you won't. Some of you will not be in countries where this is a relevant concept, but I still think it's a very important one to talk about. Um, so I'd like each of you guys to introduce yourselves, if you could. I can get started. Uh, I'm Jake Wiener. Um, this is my second time on. I was previously mm -hmm. on talking about a CBP-1 app and immigrant surveillance at the border. Um, in my day job, I'm a lawyer at the Electronic Privacy Information Center in Washington, D.C. I'm also a UVA law grad. Um, I've lived in Charlottesville on and off since 2017. And I've been on the board of the bail fund for about a year and a half now. Yeah, my name is Taylor, and I, I've lived in Charlottesville pretty much my whole life. Um, for work, I'm a carpenter, and I've been on the bail fund here since 2020. A uh, couple couple months, I wasn't here for the start, but I uh, joined quickly after it got founded. And I think, um, yeah, Azalea. Hi, I'm Azalea. Uh, I'm a two all at UBA Law. I'm originally from Chicago. I uh, grew up in a very proud Mexican Mexican American community. Um, I have lived in the Pacific Northwest, um, North Carolina, most recently, uh, DC. So various cities and places throughout the country. Nice. That's an excellent group that we got. So I think to start off with, just in case we've got folks who are not in the US or maybe are not familiar, can one of you explain to us what bail is? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in the American legal system, we have a pretty unique concept, which is after you're arrested for a crime, um, or if you're detained as an immigrant, you are then going to go in front of a magistrate who will decide whether you get out of jail right now or whether you have to wait. And most countries in the world, that's surely a question of how likely you are to show up to court and how dangerous you might be to the community, right? Obviously, they're not going to let out someone who's just like killed eight people. Just that seems like it might be a little unsafe. In America, we do things a little differently. In al almost every state and almost every municipality, we have cash bail, which means when you go in front of a magistrate, they will decide how much money you need to pay to get out of jail. And theoretically, this is to ensure that you show up to court. So when you go to court, your case gets finalized, then you're going to get that bail money back. For most offenses, bail is really low. We're talking about five hundred, a thousand, up to maybe five thousand dollars for misdemeanors, low-level nonviolent felonies. Um, now, obviously, if you are a person of means, that's really easy to come up with some money, have a family member come post it, um, or to go get a bail bondsman. If you go to a bail bondsman, they are going to charge you about ten percent of the cost of your. Bonds. So if you have a five thousand dollar bond, that's about five hundred bucks. You're not going to get that money back, but then you don't have anything out of pocket. But for a lot of people, um, the criminal legal system mostly arrests people for crimes of poverty and drug addiction. That's the majority of people who go through the system. They do not have the money to go get a bail bondsman, which is so we regularly get calls from people who don't have 
dollars $100, $500 to get out of jail. Um, that's where the bail fund comes in. We pay people's bonds, no questions asked. Nice. I'd, I'd also like to add that in addition to a lot of drug charges, um, a lot of ways that people end up in jail is through traffic stops and traffic violations, something as minor as a back tail light um, not being fully lit. And that then gives officers police an excuse to proceed from there. So something as simple as, you know, you didn't get to go to the mechanic to have your back tail light um, fixed can lead to all sorts of issues down the road of ending up in jail, unfortunately, in this wonderful country. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it's certainly pretty messed up, and it's good that we have you guys to help. Kind of, uh, while while we're working on having a better system, I guess we can make this one a little bit less painful, especially for people who are not people of means. So, uh, with your bail fund, perhaps you could explain, like, obviously some of those bail amounts you've posted, even the ones you said that were were relatively low. That's still a lot of money. So. Uh, you guys have had the bail fund for three and a bit years now. Um, how did you go about starting a bail fund? And then I guess what are the different roles that each of you plays within it now? Sure. I can talk about uh, a little bit of how it got started. It got started in 2020. I'm not 100% sure, uh, but it was about the, the spring or the summer. And it was pretty much right around the, the time you know George Floyd got murdered and all the protests was going on. It was started by a group of uh, four or five law students at UVA. And since the founding, they've all uh, graduated and moved on to other things. But that was a time when it was it was relatively easy. There was a lot of people donating money. So we were able to raise quite a bit of money at that, that time. And um, the way the bonds work is that we pay the bond. And then um, as the case, as the person goes through the court system and the case gets finalized, the money gets returned to us and we're able to use that money to post bonds again. And so with even a relatively small amount, I believe we have now we have $40,000, we're able to post a lot of bonds uh, up to nearly $200,000 so far in bonds nice. posted. And so that's like, it's a self-sustaining process. Like it can sometimes take up to a year to get the money back. But um, instead of, you know, paying the money and it being gone forever with the bail bondsman, like we're able to continuously do this and, get a lot done with a little bit of money relatively. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, you can keep it moving through the system, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So when you guys, uh, like you said you had that 40 grand, right? Where did that come from? How, how did you guys obtain that 40 grand? Uh, just donations from individuals pretty much. Yeah, yeah I think like I, said, I think there were some larger donations in like the $5,000 range from organizations at the time. Mm -hmm. But, and then since then it's kind of trickled in, you know, and I think... Uh, I've donated my own money sometimes. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a very important thing. So perhaps you could, can you give us a, just we get it, like get it in at the top of the episode. Is there a link where people can donate if they'd like to? Yeah, we absolutely need your donations. Um, bail funds around the country have had fundraising dry up. And right now we have a wait list. Like people are in jail because we don't have enough money. So please donate to us. Um, we're on PayPal at paypal.me slash Blue Ridge Bail. We're also on GoFundMe um, at Blue Ridge Community Bail Fund. And that information is on our Instagram, which is Ridge Bail. Nice. At Ridge Bail. Perfect. So 
I think you, you were talking about that, like a lot of bail funds have, have dried up since 2020. And I know that like, I've seen that in a lot of places. So there was this real like uh, growth in organizing in 2020. Right. And, and then obviously there's been like, it just, people have burnt out. People have been incarcerated, been a number of things that's made that movement hard to sustain that we don't necessarily need to go into. But what I do want to talk about is like how you guys have been able to sustain your bail fund and keep helping people out and doing this important work. So perhaps you could explain the different roles that people play in a bail fund. If people are thinking like, oh, this needs to exist in my community. Like what roles do you have? What kinds of people do you need? Sure. Um, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of bail funds are can be structured differently, but the way our, ours works and we're relatively small and the way ours works is we have a, a group of um, about six of us that's on the actual board and we handle like the logistics um, so I'm the chair, Jake's the yeah. treasurer, Azalea is a you know board member at large, but we all kind of share the same responsibilities, which is we answer the, the phone, which is the, one of the biggest parts uh, mm-hmm. when people call us either from the jail or from the street, like fam- family members and someone in jail. And then um, when we get a call, you know, we'll, uh, we look up the case, uh, call the jail to find out. And then then with the next step is posting the bond. And so we have a list of volunteers that their job is just to go to physically go to the jail with the cash um, to post the bond. And sometimes, you know, one of the board members will do that ourselves. So, yeah, it's, uh, it can be. Yeah. And then um, so as far as like the keeping the organization running well, like I said, all the original board members are gone and I've been the longest running member, uh, but we, we do have a lot of law students, like half our board is law students and that presents some challenges because they graduate and leave, but it also like yeah. brings fresh people into the organization. And then, you know, me, I live in Charlottesville. I'm here forever, which helps kind of continue with the institutional yeah. knowledge. Sure. Yeah. Having that longevity, I think is important. And yeah. Melissa, Jake and Taylor have done an incredible job sustaining the bail fund. And those of us who are law students just kind of come in and out and try to support the best we can in the limited time that we're here. Um, those of us who leave after the three years. Yeah, I'm sure it's still very important to have all those people on your time and energy and commitment. So like just just by existing, right, the bail fund kind of points out that this is a system that is broken uh, or that it certainly doesn't work to serve people. So Perhaps we could explain a little bit of that, like in the absence of a bail fund, how do things look for people who are incarcerated, right? Like what are, you spoke a little bit about bail bondsmen, but like perhaps you could talk about like the amount of bail some people would post for, or it would be the amount that how it's calculated, like what it would be and, and like what that would mean in terms of people being in prison and like how long they might expect to stay in prison just because they couldn't afford that bail. Or in being incarcerated, I should not say prison, I guess. Yeah, folks are in jail. Yeah. So the one of the cruelest parts of the American criminal justice system, criminal legal mm-hmm. system, there's not much justice, is that your freedom is contingent on having wealth. So bail is, for most offenses, as I've said, is quite low. Yeah. Um, and it's very, not only is it very difficult to post if you don't have anyone, but it's also, you know, people are locked up because they don't have $500. We, I've gotten calls from people who have literally said, I have, I don't have $100 and I don't have anyone on the outside. And I've been sitting in jail for three months 
for sometimes for an offense that when they go to court was maybe only a month of jail time. People routinely will spend six months, a year in jail for offenses that their total amount of jail time was a couple months. And you don't get compensated for that. Like if you spend a year in jail for, which means that you did 11 months that you didn't have to do, the state doesn't like cut you a check that's like, hey, we destroyed your life for 11 months for no reason. Um, And one of the things that is just like the most heartbreaking about doing this work, but is also sometimes like makes you feel really good is the way that caging people just like ruins their lives. Um, It's incredibly hard to talk to people in jail from the outside. It's very expensive. So when you're in jail, you are not talking, you're like not talking to your loved ones. You are not able to sustain a job. You're probably losing housing. Um, It's, it's destroying, you know, the life that you have on the outside. Um, But the flip side is like, we've gotten calls from folks who have said like, Hey, you bonded me out. And now I got a new job. I got a new place to live. Like I'm doing great, which is incredibly meaningful. Um, and Taylor can probably talk a little more about what being in jail is like. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Jake. So I think one of the things that like really drew, drew me to this work was like, I'm an abolitionist. And, but uh, when I was younger, I spent two years in jail. I was 23. 23 to 25, I was in jail for selling drugs. Um, and I think like, yeah, I really, that's like something that really motivates me now to do this stuff. Uh, it's, uh, it's crazy. Um, like Jake said, yeah, we've had people that one guy called and thought that we were a bail bondsman and then found out like on the phone, he's like, Oh, I didn't know you guys like would pay my bond for free. It was a $500 bond. So he would have had to pay $50 to a bail bondsman. And he yeah. didn't call us for several days because he uh, thought he had to pay fifty dollars. So it's like, you know, I like it's you know we spent all this time like thinking about like leftist stuff and like, but it's it's eye opening to see people that are stuck in jail like for lack of a hundred dollars, you know, yeah. like, and that's it. They can't get out. And so I think yeah, like, and then sometimes people call us and they're like, I have nobody. There's nobody out outside that can help them. So it's. That kind of stuff, it is upsetting. Like, yeah, it's like crazy to see this like system set up like this, but it's like, it's one of the things that like really motivates me to keep doing this work is like, man, it's so rewarding when you get those calls. And then also I think to expand on something Jake said about the the bail system, it's like, it's uh, the magistrates, when you go in front of the magistrate to get the bond, there's no, the magistrates have no oversight. They're not elected. It's, you know, we kind of just joke, like it's a vibe based system. Like they just can issue a bond for however much they feel like. And so this is where you're really going to see like the, the structural racism and like the classism really come crashing down on people, you know, uh, in front of this system. So, yeah. One thing that I'd like yeah. to add, because I think people don't really realize is mm-hmm. so a magistrate is working under a judge. They're basically a judge is like an appointed position or elected, you have to be a lawyer, you have to have a fair amount of legal education, your magistrate is just some dude, like the most some dude person you've ever met. (laughs) They they have no training require, uh, they have no like legal training requirements. Many of them are like fresh out of the army, like maybe went to college, maybe didn't. So you're talking about someone who has no particular expertise in evaluating people. 
looking at someone for a few minutes and deciding how dangerous they are to the community and making up in their head how much that person can probably pay to get out. Yeah. I I spent the summer um my first year after or summer after first year of law school at the Lynchburg Public Defender Office. So I got to review a lot of body cam footage and the way it worked with the magistrate a lot of the times was that a police officer would give a report, an incident report, read it aloud, swear them in. They'd say, this is true. This is what happened. They would give their full report. And basically that's how it was determined whether bail would be or how much bail would be set to. Um, It was heartbreaking and it was very, it happened very quickly. Like it was all based on the police officer's report and what they just decided to spew in five minutes or less. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty messed up system. I think some states have like bail guidelines, right? If I'm not mistaken, like I think California has like, you know, if you did this, if, if you're accused of this offense and then your bail goes in this bucket and then, you know, if it, it adds up depending on offenses or conspiracy or whatever. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like the thing about bail is it's different, like in every state almost. Mm-hmm. Some states, you know, have maybe like more progressive, quote unquote, yeah, uh, yeah, setups. I mean, but I some would... some have some don't and yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say, like California has a reputation of being progressive, but San Diego has charged some of the most insanely high bail amounts I've ever seen. Although we all aspire to do what Illinois just did at the beginning of this year, which was to eliminate uh, bail altogether, it would just or cash bail altogether. It would just be based on whether uh, you can be released or not. Yeah, that would be nice. Is it is it, just to be clear? Like the the bail isn't like it, it's not like the 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 state keeps the money unless you don't show up like is it uh, is it a revenue generator for states or is this purely like a a sort of punitive thing that they think has some kind of value in that regard it's purely punitive the idea truly is to make sure that you show up to your court case um and in the u.s it's often used as a proxy for dangerousness Mm -hmm. so you when you go in front of a magistrate you got three options number one is you get out on personal recognizance if you're a nice white boy like me, you're getting personal recognizance, almost yeah. certainly. Yeah. Um, option two is you're going to have to pay cash bond, bail. And that amount is decided by the magistrate, as you said, possibly on a schedule, possibly just whatever the magistrate feels like. Um, and then option three is you might get no bond, which is to say that it doesn't matter how much money you have, you're not getting out of jail. Um and in like a functioning criminal legal system that just on its own terms like worked, this is not an abolitionist perspective. Um, cash bail is unnecessary. The magistrate should be deciding, and the judge should be deciding whether you are a threat to the community or whether you're not. And that yeah. should be like the only option. Um, the other thing I'll throw in here is that paying money is not the best way to make sure that people show up to court. There's extensive data from the immigration system and from the legal system that the number one best way to make sure people show up to their court date is to give them an attorney. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a whole other thing we can get into with immigration. Um, so I, th- I think that's a really good kind of example of some, a good deep dive into what bail is. So essentially like a bail fund can make it so that, that there is not this financial 
burden or this financial barrier to freedom, right? Well, you haven't been yet to be convicted of any crime. Um, so like it's it's not necessarily like an abolitionist thing to exist, but like it, it helps at least move us towards a, a less cruel, a less unjust system, I suppose. Um, so I want to talk about like a little bit of like the, the like nuts and bolts of what it takes to run a bail fund. Um, but before we do that, uh, we are 22 minutes in. Uh, so talking of nuts and bolts, we need to pay our bills. So this is an advert. It's probably not something you need, uh, but here it is anyway. All right, we're back. Uh, I hope you've bought whatever it was, MREs or Ronald Reagan dog coins or uh, I don't know, Hoover. Um, so let's talk about the, the like, if, like if you're listening to this and you're in your car on your way home or whatever time you're listening uh, on, on a long road trip, you're thinking, I would like to be the person. Maybe you're a, a law student yourself or you're a formerly incarcerated person or you've had family members go through the, the uh, system. And you're like, hell yeah, this shit sucks. And I would like to help make it a little bit less sucky. Um, when you're like, I'm thinking here, when you establish a bail fund, like, is it a 501c3? Do you need like uh, certain, like, do you, I know for 501c3, you need certain people and a certain number of people doing certain jobs on your board, that kind of stuff. Like, what are the like concrete steps that one has to take to go from this sucks to I'm the chair of the bail fund and I can help you? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. So we are a 5013C, 501C3, um, but uh, we were posting bonds before we had like the official status. So I think truly like all you need is some motivation and some money. And there, we, you know, there are bail funds that post 10 to 15 bonds a week. And there's bail funds that post one bond a month because that's all they can do. And I think like um, as our organization has grown and matured. We've gotten way more organized and we started out, it was, it was pretty chaotic and people, it was poorly organized, but we were still posting the bonds. And I think from day one, we've been good about that. And so like, you can definitely start and you'll learn as you, we've learned as we go and, you know, we've refined everything, but like I said, it just, it takes some motivation and a little bit of money. And, and then maybe Jake can talk some too, about the finer details. Yeah. <laughs> So I think Taylor's absolutely right. Um, I'm going to give some recommendations that I would say are how to set up your structure in a durable way. Um, and I would also point people to the National Bail Fund Network, which can provide resources um, and advice cool. for this type of thing. Yeah. Um, so basically what you need to run your bail fund is you need a group of people. Um, the load, honestly, is just like too much for one person, both emotionally and literally. You need people to share this work with yeah. for, for it to be sustainable. I recommend that you set up a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, this will help shield your volunteers from legal liability, and it means you could take tax-deductible donations. Mm -hmm. The way that you set that up is going to depend on your state. Um, in Virginia, you register with the State Corporation Commission, which means you need a like president, which is Taylor, um, and you need a treasurer, and then a couple other potentially a couple other board members. These yeah. are the people who own technically the 501c3, and so you just need those people on your documents um you yeah. can use their address but we recommend that you set up a p.o box for getting mail it just yeah. makes things a little easier um means you don't have to like hand your personal address over to a magistrate yeah makes you less doxable as well yes um and i recommend setting up a dedicated bank account uh, with and go to a bank that makes it 
has good hours so that you can readily withdraw withdraw cash because you can only post bond in cash, which is its own insanity. Um, yeah. So one thing we deal with is like the bank being closed and then having to wait a couple of days, you know, day and a half to, to be able to post. Yeah. We also recommend a Google Voice phone number so that multiple people can receive phone calls at the same time, right? We can have four people on our Google Voice. And that means that if I'm working, Taylor can answer the phone. Um, we split it up by weeks. So we have a point person each week who is responsible for answering the phone mainly. But that doesn't mean you're the only person who answers that week. It's just sort of you want to be more heads up. Um, you also are going to want a decision-making structure. We use a consensus-based model, um, do most of our discussions in a signal thread. But then we also meet about once a month. Um, and if we have some issue that comes up, we can meet more often. And you need ideally a way to connect to volunteers. So we've had good luck with the law school, but we're expanding beyond that, you know, trying to be go to different institutions in the community and recruit folks to volunteer for us. Um, you want to do some amount of vetting of your volunteers. You know, they should be in an affinity network or have a, a way that you can ensure that they're not going to walk away with the five grand in cash that you hand them. Oh, yeah. um, it doesn't have to be extensive, but it's good to be smart about. Yeah. And one thing that we found really helpful is having business cards, because that means you can hand it to the magistrate and they can get your address right. They can put you the name of the bail fund down. Um, a problem that we've had is not all magistrates recognizing the bail fund, um, which, but you really want to have a PO box and that business card so that when you get checks back from the court system, they come to a centralized place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then anyone can drop in and deposit them in the bank account. And then mm -hmm. the last thing that you want is website and a fundraising infrastructure. So as we said at the top right now, we're using GoFundMe and PayPal. But any way that you make this work um, is great. And we can definitely do better and we'll be expanding. That's basically <laughs> it, though. It's really not that much. Yeah, but that's great. I think it's like... So often, like a thing that I've seen just being sort of on the left in various movements since I was uh, younger, it's like we reinvent the wheel every like four or five years, you know, so just having those things that you guys have learned, you know, like using Google Voice and uh, and having a bank with good hours, I think that saves someone from having to fall down those same holes again. So that's that's really valuable. I wonder then, like, you talked a little bit about legal liability, which we don't necessarily need to go into, but like there must, is there like, for, I mean, there have been some obviously heavily politicized arrests in the last few months in, in the United States. Uh, do you guys face like personal blowback or blowback against a group when, if, uh, if you're able to bail someone out where their arrest has been heavily reported on or politicized? Like, is that something people need to be aware of? I think that's a great question. Um, where we are, there's really, we haven't posted the bond for anything that's like political protest related, but there is a bail fund that's about an hour away, much bigger than ours that in 2020 was doing like every night bail support, uh, jail support. Yeah. At, um, so yeah, that's like an example of, you know, just way different bail funds operate. Um, and then so Basically, we have not ever faced any kind of political blowback or any issues, um, but mm -hmm. it's definitely something that we're prepared, we, th we think about. Uh, 
because it can't happen. There's definitely been story, and there's definitely cases around the country where, like, uh, prosecutors have taken aim at bail funds. You know, Atlanta, of course, was a really, a really, yes, uh, yeah, hot big one. But they think, um, so yeah, Jake, do you have anything to, to add, maybe? Yeah, I will say that it's certainly a possibility that your bail fund becomes the target of both like institutional and like a kind of right-wing moral panic. Mm-hmm. Um, these things happen. It's, I think, relatively unlikely, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be prepared for it. And I think that when you kind of address that, and if you end up in the media or getting heat for it, the most important thing that you can do is reflect the fact that the bail fund is not responsible for what happens when people get out because we don't decide if you're getting out of jail. Yeah. We work on a first come first serve basis. When someone calls us, we post their bail, no questions asked. And that's because yeah. there's already been a decision of whether this person is safe to be released. And that decision yeah. is made by the magistrate. Yeah. So, so any responsibility falls on the criminal legal system. It does not yeah. fall on us. Um, and I think it's important to say that you never hear this blowback coming towards bail bondsmen, even yeah. though they get out way more people and more dangerous people than we do. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the case. Um, so I wonder, like, what other issues you have faced, hardships, and you, you spoke about a couple of them, but uh, are there other things, like, um, that you've, I know, for instance, like, I've obviously, as part of my reporting, or maybe not obviously, but some people apparently don't, bothers to do it but uh I, I communicate with incarcerated people when i'm writing about them uh because it seems like a reasonable thing to do and i i am very aware of how annoying expensive time consuming and and just generally totally inadequate the system is of communication with people even people who are not convicted of any crime so i don't know if that's something you've encountered if, if there are other sort of hardships that you guys have had to deal with perhaps if there are ways you've worked out to get around them or to at least make them less uh, difficult, then that would be great for people to hear too. The communication thing is a huge problem. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, most of the calls we get are from people that are act currently in the jail and mm-hmm. they can only call us and we cannot call them. Uh, so, you know, they call us and we have to just say, okay, like you need to call back in a couple of hours. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, they have lockdowns, they can't get to the phone, all sorts of things. So the worst, I mean, yeah, I think probably one of the worst things that ever happened was someone called and I called the jail and the jail was like, oh, they can be released today. And yeah. so I, the guy calls back and I'm like, hey, man, you're going to get released today. We're going to have a volunteer go out and post this bond. Like, you don't need yeah. to call me back. Like, if you want to, you can, but it's it's all rolling, right? Yeah. And then I call the jail to triple check everything and they say, oh, you know, we have to hear back from the court. The court has to approve this and they're like closing in, in 30 minutes. So it's not going to happen today. Jesus. And so yeah. now like I have no way to call this guy and tell him that he's actually not going to get out today because of a like bureaucratic issue. Yeah. And I just have to wait until he just like can't take it anymore and then calls. And that yeah. was, it's really unpleasant situation. It's, it's really unfortunate. And you know, he was not happy. <laughs> he yeah. was not happy. And I, I mean, you know, he took a little bit out on me, but it's, it wasn't a case of him actually being mad at me. You know, I think that's something that's really cool is like no one, we deliver bad news all the time. You know, we say you can't get out because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. And no one's ever like actually mad at us. You know, they might 
be like annoyed for a second because, you know, I'm on the phone delivering the bad news, but every time at the end, they're like, thanks so much. Like, I appreciate you. So we haven't had any, like, I mean, yeah, I think nothing really super negative has happened. It's just, like you said, the communication, huge problem when it's family members calling from not in jail, it's a little more easy to, to deal with. Yeah. We can call them back and see. Yeah. Yeah. I'll jump in on communication just for a minute yeah. um, because this is an issue that I work on at my day job. Yeah. Um, the paid prison phone system is one of the worst parts of American life. Um, it is incredibly expensive to call people and the pr- phone systems work really poorly and they're actually getting worse. So for us, like our the main jail that we work with, Middle River Regional Jail, um, used to use a phone provider called GTL, who's one of the biggest in the country. Um, and that was pricey, but like we could reliably get calls. They just switched over to a different provider who makes money in a different way. Uh, they provide tablets to the prison. And as a result of that, all our phone calls are now made coming from the prison like social room on a tablet, which means sometimes it's too loud to hear the person calling. And yeah. about 15% of the time, the call just drops when you pick it up. Um, so the system makes it really difficult to correspond with people. Yeah. As a result, um, a couple of things that we do are sharing the phone responsibility, um, not promising people things when we can't deliver them is yeah. super important. And like that's mostly a problem because the phone system works so badly and we can't communicate with people. And then the biggest thing is like giving yourself grace when you miss the phone, um, when something goes wrong, because it's emotionally very taxing to know that someone desperately wants to speak with you because they're potentially at the worst point in their entire yeah. life and need to get out and you've like missed a phone call. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really important to be kind to yourself in those situations. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or you won't stick around. One, yep. one more thing that I was surprised to find out about yeah. the phone system is how much recording and reviewing of recording goes on through those phone calls. I witnessed so many prosecutors, um, Commonwealth attorneys, bring up something from phone calls uh, when folks were actually in trial or for sentencing hearings, or this is later down the road. But the fact that they could pull up those recordings from a year before, two years before, um, they were they were calling a loved one, a family member. Um, just incredible how much access there is to that and lack of privacy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very dehumanizing. Yeah. I got to jump in on that. Yeah. yeah. If you end up in jail, do not say anything about your case on the phone. Do not. Oh, and don't talk to the guards about why you're innocent because I've seen that people do that. It's not good advice. Don't do it. Don't talk <laughs> about the case <laughs> ever. Yeah. One way that we address that is yeah. by telling people up front that we post bond, no questions asked. Right. Um, yeah. And like telling people like, it doesn't matter what your situation is. We're, if we have the money and you can get out, we're going to post. Yeah. 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 It's not your job to adjudicate. Like you said, if someone's safe or unsafe or innocent or guilty, that, that's what the state purports to be doing. Like your job is just to make sure that someone's not too poor to be free. So on the subject of like the sheer finances of it, I know like certainly here, 
I've seen, and I have no idea what the sort of, I know San Diego does have, uh, California has these bail uh, guidelines, so they, they can't just set whatever bail they want. But like in 2020, we saw some sky high bails. And I don't know if it was just because it was like, fuck you bail fund, or it was just because that was what the guidelines allowed, or some combination thereof. But uh, do you guys have a like, we can't, because if you said you're, you're dealing with 40,000, right? Like, we if you drop 10,000 on one individual, that obviously means that there are a lot of people with $500 who, who can't, who have to stay in jail. So uh, do you have like a cap on your individual bail amounts for that reason? Yeah. Taylor, do you want to take this? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we have a cap. We pay up to $5,000. So $5,000 or less. Um, and that, uh, yeah, it's exactly what you said. Like, otherwise, you know, we would be totally, and out of money and even you know two five thousand dollar bonds in a row and then you know yeah we're pretty screwed so and then i think that's a you know it brings up something else that jig and i were talking about like it's we have it's it's important to stick to that limit uh and if we one time we posted a bond up to twelve thousand dollars for somebody and you know i think it was a combination of many factors that led us to do that but at the end of the day it can be very hard just to tell someone no, because it was like yeah. he had a five thousand dollar bond, and then in a separate court, I got another one, and so it was. You know, we already told okay. him we could pay the one bond. Anyway, yeah. long story short, we had twelve thousand dollars tied up on this guy, and then he didn't show up to court. Um, yeah. And if that's that's when you can lose the money, and people don't show up to court. So, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Fortunately for us, unfortunately for him, he did get rearrested on another charge. Uh, and when that happens, we, there's like a 90 day period where if the person gets caught, then uh, we get the money back. And that's where like we, our prince, our policy is like, we're not going to do anything. If the person runs, like we're not going to do anything to try to get it back. We're not going to revoke anybody's bond. Um, yeah. But like a bail bondsman might try to like find you if you run. Yeah. But so our kind of our joke was kind of like, well, we hope that we hope the guy just gets away completely. But if he's not going to get away, maybe get caught within 90 days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But but the best thing is if uh, people would contribute and donate, we could uh, be able to allocate for so many more people and not have people spend time in jail where things like mental health conditions worsen because um prison guards are and jail guards are not paying attention um where you don't have access to an attorney easily where when you show up to your day in um in court you don't have an orange jumpsuit on and that's not factoring into the judge's mind so please please donate for all those reasons um to our bail fund yeah yeah if we have more money that's something we talked about a lot of times like if we have more money we would be able to raise the limit on the amount we could post, but it's just not feasible right now. In terms of donation, it's a great thing. I was just thinking like, because it keeps going around and around and around, right? It, it's not like, mm-hmm. you know, you give a donation once and you get someone a thing and you change their life. Like you could potentially change dozens or hundreds of people's whole trajectory. Yeah, know. absolutely. Cool. Um, yeah. And I will add on how we address our lack of funds. Um, the yeah. other system that we have in place is a wait list. Yeah. So, 
people call us and we can tell them, Hey, you're on the wait list. Um, they'll call back all the time and be like, Hey, have I moved up the wait list? Sometimes yeah. people call like multiple times a day and they're like, yeah. Oh, any movement? My, my number <laughs> four now, which <laughs> um, <laughs> is kind of wild. Yeah. But, uh, having the wait list and we go like in strict wait list order with the exception that if someone has an under $500, $500 or less, we'll just post that yeah. because if we're sitting around waiting for someone to like get money back from the courts for a $5,000 bond that's next in line, we could yeah. have 4,500 bucks. Um, yeah. And so for the super low bonds where the issue is like purely, purely poverty, um, yeah. we make an exception. Yeah. But you run into that kind of ethical question all the time running the bail fund. Like, how do we make the best decisions that's going to help, you know, people in, in the best way and that accords with our values the most? Um, that can get pretty heated and intense. Um, yeah. And having a, a setup of folks where, like, you really respect each other and like each other, I think is really important to not let that spiral out of control. Uh, it helps that, you know, Taylor and Melissa and I have been friends for many years. Um, yeah. And we can like hang out and talk about this. And then like Taylor and I can go out and go for a bike ride. Um, nice. So having those relationships, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And don't get too competitive over board games like wings uh, when somebody <laughs> wins and still being able to talk at the end of that. <laughs> Seems yeah. like a direct uh, experience one. Then. <laughs> yeah. It may we have been an evolution. We are an abolitionist, like principles, you know, and um, but I, and I think almost like you know, I've talked one other bail fund that I know of. They have a some sort of system. I'm not super familiar with like prioritizing someone that maybe they consider to be higher risk in the prison system to get okay. out first. And I think that that's a really a really appealing uh, thing. But it's it's just like kind of Jake touched on earlier, like that's just adding like another layer of judgment. Like then yeah. we become these like arbiters of who is in jail and who's not in jail. And yeah. as much, and so like almost, almost counterintuitively, like having this system first come first serve, I think is like the most abolitionist thing we can do. Yes, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. And it does certainly reduces the load on you and making those difficult choices, which yeah, it, it helps with that. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about the system and like, I want to bring that up be because the system is like, you know, I, I, I cover not a lot of criminal justice, but a decent bit. And it is incredibly confusing. It's convoluted. It's like they've got these old ass names that you don't understand. And then you're in Virginia. So you have a whole other layer of weird stuff going on, uh, like with names. And so like, if someone's thinking of starting this and they're like, I want this to happen, but I do not understand how to navigate the system. Like, does that mean that they need someone with a little more legal experience? Like, can you explain how, as like someone who isn't obviously some of both, uh, like at least two of you have, I suppose all of you have some experience with the legal system in one way or another and understand it a little better because of that. But if someone has been fortunate enough not to have to interact with the, uh, the criminal law system, are they like, do they need a law student or a lawyer to start a bail fund or like how does one go about learning to navigate that system? I suppose. Yeah, they definitely do not. You do not need to have legal uh, experience. I think it was kind of a just a random chance that it was the law students that founded this one. Uh, basically, like you said, it's an extremely confusing system. And the only way you're going to learn how it all works is just by going and posting the bonds. Like the, 
the system is possible like the bond system we're just like a family member going to post someone's bond so like it's set up and then it is possible for like your loved one to post your bond um and we just learned it all through experience you know you just go you call it you would just call the jail and say where do i post this bond mm-hmm. and they'll tell you you know you come to the magistrate this is where the magistrate's located and then you know you go with the cash and post and like there'll be every like we work in it's 10 courts five different jurisdictions and then they each have two court systems and i swear almost every single court does things somewhat differently and the way we we just get on the phone and call them you know be really polite and just figure it all out and write it down so that we know in the future yeah 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 i'll tell you like you can learn these systems over time and that's really worth doing because in a moment of crisis like mass arrest during a protest movement knowing how to navigate the system in a quick and reliable way is really valuable it makes it way easier to get people out um, and so I would like pitch, even if you don't feel really strongly about getting people out of jail, but you want to be helpful in a time of crisis, like learning the legal system as a non-lawyer is doable. Um, I will also say that like, you don't learn how to do this stuff in law school. I didn't learn how to post a bond, how to like file a capius, um, any of this cr- crazy stuff that we have to do. Um, Virginia is truly like one of the worst states in the country. Um, I talked to a public defender who's worked in courts in Louisiana and was like, yeah, the Virginia court system is worse and more unfathomable, (laughs) (laughs) which is not, if you know anything about New Orleans legal system is not great. Um, But you can, yeah, you can learn an incredible amount and then that skill just becomes valuable in a number of different areas. Um, One of the most like powerful ways that can help people is even when you're not able to post bond for them, knowing how to look up someone's case, tell them what their charges are, tell them what is happening to them is incredibly helpful because the majority of people we talk to have some idea of why they're in jail, but they don't know the details. And that means that they don't know like why they're not getting out. Um, and just being able to give people a little bit of certainty is really important. Yeah, I think that's a very valuable thing you can do. Um, I Yeah, I think this whole thing has been a really valuable insight into how to build a bail fund, I guess. Um, is there anything else that you guys think that we didn't cover, like in the in the grand scheme of being bail fund uh, entrepreneurs? I don't know what the right phrase is, but bail, bail fund founders. Just the importance and making sure to be rooted in the community. I think that's going to be the best way not only to... Uh, fundraise in the long term because mm-hmm. you can have even five dollars if it's reoccurring from some community members you get to know what's happening what's something that's a reoccurring problem throughout the community um and just making sure to listen to that and to be able to navigate going forward i think one thing uh that's i think is i found so interesting about doing this the bill fund is that it spans it really crosses completely there or even like i would say it transcends politics like I, I think that all of the board members are in here politically motivated you know or abolitionists or you know against the current court system uh but pe- the people's lives like across every political spectrum have been ruined by prison and jail and i think 
one time, like I think the most interesting example that really drove this home was I was at work, I was at the lumber yard, you know, and I think, you know, the people, the salesmen at the lumber yard, I think they would fall into more. If I was going to stereotype them, I would say they'd be more on the conservative side. And the one guy, the salesman was, he had heard about that I did this. I think he saw on Facebook, I posted about it. And he was like, that is, he's like, this is just the coolest thing ever, man. Like, I think it's so awesome. You know, like, he's like, people are just locked up for like bullshit. And yeah. And I think, you know, we've had volunteers that I think people were like, knew him or like, why? Like, he's a, like almost like a Republican and just going out and posting these bonds. And I think that it's, uh, like I said, yeah, it's just fascinating that it, it does transcend it transcends the politics a little bit. Yeah. I think anyone who's had to interact with the criminal justice system, I don't know, like I haven't interacted with the American one, but like if they've had it in their family, if they've had it in their, you know, in their friend group or whatever, realizes how dehumanizing and, and unjust it is. And mm-hmm. especially like if they're working people, right? They don't not people of, of massive means. They'll have seen how, how hard it can weigh on you trying to come up with money to bond someone out who you care about. And even if they end up not being found guilty. And so like, it can be a very broad based thing. I think uh, it, it's certainly something that like, I saw a lot of people giving money to bail funds in 2020 who like, I, I may not have, you know, they weren't necessarily people who were also out in the streets. Like it's a way for people to be part of a movement. It's a way for people to, who feel that like, this is unjust, even if, yeah, they, they might not share abolitionist politics or whatever. I think it's something that a lot of people would want to get behind. Yeah, I'll say that for me, the most meaningful part of this work is having the opportunity to treat people with dignity when they are in a system that absolutely gives them no dignity. The police do not treat people with dignity. The judges in the courts do not treat people with dignity. And your jailers are not going to treat you with dignity. So having the opportunity to answer a phone and be kind to someone, to listen to them and to do small things for them, call their family, let their family know that they're locked up. Let their family yeah. know that we're, someone is working on getting them out. Um, oftentimes, I will get a call from someone and we aren't able to post, but I can like call their mom and talk their mom through getting a bail bondsman. Um, yeah. I've had people like cry on the phone with me because they've said, I felt so helpless not being able to get my son out of jail and getting a call from you made a huge difference. So I think I just like, if you can do this, you can get together with your friends and form a bail fund and in a really concrete way, improve their lives and treat them with dignity. And that's such a radical thing. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I think to wrap up, we should uh, we should again remind people where they can give you their money. So how, how will people go about doing that? Yeah, please. Please, do. please donate <laughs> to the Blue Ridge Community Bail Fund. Um, <laughs> we are on PayPal at paypal.me slash Blue Ridge Bail. Um, Ridge is R-I-D-G-E. Uh, we're on GoFundMe. You can find us under the Blue Ridge Community Bail Fund. We are on Instagram um, at Ridge Bail. And we also have a website, blueridgebailfund.org. I think so. You can Google Blue Ridge Community Bail Fund. It'll show up. And uh, yeah, if anybody is interested in starting a bail fund and wants to ask us any questions, like, please do. We would love to talk about it. We've learned a lot through just reaching out to other bail funds, even if they're not in the state of Virginia, of how they were formed, what worked for them, what didn't. Just having a 30-minute conversation gives sometimes wonderful ideas on how to go forward. 
That's great. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, I think that was really good. Anything else you want to share before we go? I think we're good. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, so. Thanks so much. Thank All you right. for having us. Yeah, yeah thanks. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.